Welcome, everyone, to the Fandom Podcast Network special presentation of Time Warp. And uh, we are celebrating the last month of 1983, December. And we are also going to be discussing the Oscar and Razzie Award winners for 1983. In this episode of Time Warp, of course, we will cover the pop culture and the music and all that fun stuff that happens uh, during the month that we're going to be discussing here. But what's really cool, back in 1983, that was 40 years ago as of this recording. So welcome to Time Warp 1983. I'm Kevin, and I'll be your host. I'd like to introduce my guest, as always, for this awesome, fun party going back in time. And I'd like to, of course, bring on my brother from another mother, the fellow founder of the Fandom Podcast Network, Mr. Kyle Wagner. What's going on, buddy? Uh, I'm doing pretty good. I rode my BMX to get here, um, but I was chased by a possessed car the whole trip, so I'm, I might be a little out of breath. <laughs> <laughs> was that BMX chase like 30 minutes of the movie? <laughs> yeah, but but you know what? I was avo- able to avoid any sudden impacts. <laughs> nice. Well played. And as always, we have to have the queen of movie foo with us, Miss Lacey Adderhold. Welcome. How are you? I'm well. How are you? I'm doing really good. Doing really good. Uh, so this is the end of 83, guys. Quick comments on how, what it feels like discussing the end of 83. Kyle. It's, it's, been, it's been a ride. It's been a lot of memories. This is kind of an interesting period for me with movies because I was technically eight at the time for most of these films. So a lot of these films are probably more memories of watching them on VHS a couple years later through rentals or HBO or something like that. But it's still an interesting time because there's a lot of memories that you associate with these, with these films and a lot of good, good memories, a lot of like, Oh yeah, I forgot about that. So these are the, these are the interesting times of these early eighties time warps. So when we get into like 85 and up, it's it's a little bit more stick with you because you really lived it at the theater. That's true. Lacey, what about you? End of 83, what are your thoughts? I feel like 1983 was having a polar, by like a bipolar episode. Um, I just realized I'm wearing two pairs of glasses. Let's <laughs> 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 yeah. leave that in there for posterity. Um, no, I, um, I think that, speaking of bipolar, um, I think that there, it was like super fun, like hilarious stuff. And then just like so dramatic stuff. The world is ending. Russians are coming. Like all that kind of stuff. So it was like, it was just this real, like you either up here or way down here. And it was just kind of gives you whiplash. It's true. That's a good point. Mm-hmm. You're right. There was a lot of drama in 83. Yeah. As Kyle was alluding to, one of the things that I remember was home video was starting mm-hmm. to take off. Not for our family, for my friends and stuff like that. And so uh, getting to the theaters more often, too, was a thing for me and my friends, uh, especially with a lot of these movies that were coming out. And, you know, it was with Return of the Jedi and all these other films and stuff. So uh, it's going to be interesting to uh, wind this a year out because we will be discussing the Oscars. Uh, would we have done something different? Uh, and also the Razzie Awards, we always like to. Because what people don't remember, too, is the Razzie Awards were early in their uh, existence. I think this was the fourth or fifth of the Razzie Awards 
that came out for 83. So we'll, we'll, we'll discuss that. As I mentioned, of course, this is the movies of 1983 here on the fandom podcast network, but we would also like to give love to some other time warp shows that are on the network. We recently did time warp Buffy, the vampire slayer TV series retrospective and Lacey and Kyle, you of course were on there. I'm still doing my uh, rewatch of Buffy, the vampire slayer. I was a little late to trying to finish it because I had a bunch of other stuff I was doing, but I'm into season four right now. I'm thoroughly enjoying it. And I had a question for you real quick Lacey is this when I need to start kind of peeking into Angel because Angel went to season one and season four of, Angel, of Buffy yes and I will okay. say that there are more crossovers in season one than there are in the in the rest of the seasons for for Angel gotcha. for Angel okay. yeah so okay. you'll want to see because there's some pretty significant stuff okay. that happens there's some Oz crossover and there's some Buffy crossover so right. um, cool. some good stuff yeah Look, looking forward to that also recently we had Time Warp uh, Part 6 of 83, where we discussed uh, some movies like Never Say Never Again. Of course, The Day After. Uh-huh. Star 80, All the Right Moves, Right Stuff, and A Christmas Story. Kyle? I'm on my about sixth rewatch of The Day After, but I am just fine. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Why? You might need some help there, Kyle. But we are... <laughs> As I mentioned, we're in part seven here. (laughs) And uh, I think it's time to do a little bit of time travel, guys. Uh, So, yeah, let's uh, take a step back in time in 1983. Let's fuel up that DeLorean with that flux capacitor. Slingshot around the sun aboard that captured uh, Klingon bird of prey. and Take a step into that blue police box or phone booth. Step into that quantum leap accelerator, or in my favorite, take a dip in that hot tub time machine as we travel back to 1983. We're going to remind you of what was happening in pop culture, sports, politics, television, and of course, the movies of 1983. All right. Vintage 1983, guys. 40 years ago. Of course, we did uh, cover a lot of sex comedies this year because it was the year of the sex comedies. But, you know, let's also talk about what's been happening in 83, especially during uh, this year specifically and, of course, in December. And we always love to uh, look back at uh, the cost of things, what was happening. uh, What was the cost of things? Uh, Average house, 89,000 at gas, $1.16. (laughs) Uh, postage stamps seem to stay like 20 cents for a long time. I don't know. It just, it seemed like it, it didn't change till the nineties almost. Am I remembering that wrong, Kyle? Uh, I I would say at least through the eighties, it stayed within that 20 to 30 cents range. Kind of went up to 30 cents, 33, 36 cents through most of the nineties and early two thousands. I've been in about the last five or six years that postage has just gone bonkers. Yeah. I remember the 32 cent stamp lasting a really long time. Yeah. 32 yeah. cent stamp lasted yeah. for forever. Yeah. yeah. Definitely. <laughs> well, we got some world news here, of course, in 83 during this time in December. Uh, December 2nd, Michael Jackson's music video for Thriller is broadcast for the first time. It becomes the most often repeated and famous music video of all time, increasing its own popularity and record sales of the album Thriller. Kyle, I want to go to you first here, uh, and then you, Lacey, of what this meant to you, because this, I almost feel like this also put and getting MTV on the map, if you didn't already, because if you weren't watching at home, you're watching at someone's house. Kyle. 
this this video really changed everything because I remember this was like almost like a movie premiere with this video coming out on MTV. People were getting together to watch the premiere of this video. And I just remember they, they made a whole like half hour special out about it. And it started that chain of like major Michael Jackson music videos that became becoming like an event and MTV made the most of it. And I mean, it was MTV. She was showing it five to 10 times a day in its rotation for almost a year. It felt like, and this, this just, I think this, I mean, this really just changed how people made music videos. And I think it really, even though we had MTV earlier and video killed the radio star, of course, but I think Thriller really launched the true air of the music. That's a great point, Kyle. Lacey, what are your uh, uh, thoughts on when Thriller first hit the um, MTV airwaves? Okay. I have two thoughts. First thought is um, I loved it. It was great. It was super fun. Um, I was a little bit like freaked out by it because I don't like horror very much. I mean, you know, y'all know that about me. Um, I will say that later on, I decided that I wanted to get the LP because, you know, whatever. Um, So right about the time that that eBay was just starting, um, there was this trick where if you, if you misspelled things on purpose to search for them, you'd find things that nobody bid on. (laughs) Nobody could find it because it was misspelled. So I bought a Michael Jackson Thriller with one L <laughs> which was just misspelled um the the album is the right album and it's the original pressing still in the plastic and I still have wow. it wow wow yeah. that's um, amazing yeah. so I have that frame <laughs> I bought the Thriller album yeah Thriller um, that's awesome it's like 89 cents with free shipping and, and when did you purchase that what year right when e- right when eBay was starting up like you know 90s 90- 90s okay um so yeah and i also well there's a lot of other stories about the the amazing things i got off of ebay at that time but we're not talking about that the other thing is i think that this the way they premiered this particular video was so kind of i mean i'm not want to say over the top but it was like very very produced right i mean so there's interviews and and all the behind the scenes stuff and all this kind of stuff and i think that that's what started the eventual move towards more and more behind the scenes stuff, more and more uh, programming that was scripted or unscripted. And that then led to the death of MTV. Right. Right. I think this is the first thing that kind of, I mean, it had a good five years of, of content that was music, but like music video related. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, excellent point because this movie this video felt felt like a movie and when nowadays when you look at short films a lot of them are even shorter than thriller now and i I, so it it set a precedence for not only the way videos are done but also short films and behind the scenes like you said but also too it also set a precedence for any party anywhere if thriller breaks out whether you know all the moves or not People start doing it and it's become a thing, of course, for Halloween. And mm-hmm. it's just, and I think also made incredibly famous in one of the best scenes in 13 going on 13 30. Going on 30. It, yes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> it is, is the thriller dance. So yeah. I was getting ready to say we all turn into, we all turn into <laughs> Mark Ruffalo. Yes, exactly. 
A uh, few other things, too, before uh, we show who got bor uh, born here. The Denver Nuggets and the visiting Detroit Pistons combined, combined for a NBA record of 370 points. I see it, Kyle. Hold on a sec. With Detroit winning in triple overtime, 186 to 184. Did you want to comment on that, Kyle? Yeah, I did because for you sports ball heads out there, this is actually a very fun time in the NBA, early 80s, because the NBA wasn't like huge at that point. But the Denver Nuggets were coached by a guy named Doug Moe, and he decided when he got there what he was going to do is, oh, hey, we play at above altitude. So we're not going to play defense. We are just going to run everybody into the ground. <laughs> and the scores of Denver Nugget games were absolutely insane during this time period. Interesting. They just played offense. That's funny. <laughs> you play with your strengths, man. That's yeah. you play your strengths. That's how it works. Uh, December 31st, the Apple Macintosh television advertisement is released to a big fanfare and WTF as well. That was a big deal there. A few other things too. the McDonald's introduced, of course, the McNugget uh, dare the drug abuse resistance education program is launched. The economy begins a robust recovery following the early, early 1980s recession. Uh, we mentioned earlier too. Kellogg's introduced Crispix cereal. Cabbage Patch dolls make their debut in creating Cabbage Patch riots. <laughs> I remember seeing the video footage of that on the news and going, "Oh my god!" It is that's probably like the first true Black Friday type riot thing I ever remember seeing. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. Yeah, my definitely. Girl Scout troop went to uh, Cleveland, Georgia, where the um, the Cabbage Patch, whatever it's called, I, it's got a name. Um, Xavier Roberts was the guy who designed them. And you go in and you watch like all the dolls being born, and like you walk through this thing. And it's the like now it seems super creepy, but it was like the coolest thing ever back then. I wasn't even into dolls. I didn't have a doll. I didn't. Well, I did have a doll. Didn't. I don't want a doll person. But they were. It was just so fun and crazy. But and yeah, they, it was they, they were, I'll, I'll be honest, they, they were kind of cute, you know, so yeah. They're adorable. So. <laughs> but it's crazy. Right. The, first, the first little section that you walk into has all these heads on like cabbage leaves. And it looks like a cabbage patch with all the little heads. Yep. Like, come on, man. That's yeah, just, yeah, I know. It was, it was. Underlying stuff there. Br brilliant <laughs> right. marketing, brilliant. Yeah, it was, it was yeah. a hit at the right time. All right, guys. So because you were born, we have some Somewhat famous people that were born in December of uh, 1983. Uh, Jaina Kramer, actress. Aaron Rodgers, football player. Uh, diva. <laughs> I need a dark room, Kevin. Uh, yes, yes. Ooh, good reference there. I got that one. Daniela Ruha, actress. Patrick Fluger, actor. AJ Lamas, actor. Gia Alleman, actress, model, and reality television contestant. Uh, Jonah Hill, actor. Stephen Young, actor. Josh Sussman, actor. And Ashley Zuckerman, Australian-born actor. All born in December of 1983. And we did lose a couple of uh, famous people here in eight, uh, December of 1983. Slim Pickens, actor, 
famous rodeo performer. I remember him in so many older films. This is a younger picture of him here on YouTube. And if you are listening to this podcast, make sure you check out the YouTube because we are putting up some awesome pictures. And music legend died way too young. A founder of the Beach Boys, Dennis Wilson. He passed away. I believe that was a pool drowning, if I remember correctly. I'm trying to remember exactly, but yeah. He passed away as well. All right, guys. Next, we have 80s toys. We love our toys, don't we, Kyle? <laughs> we're going we're gonna to have some conversations before this one. We get through all these toys. Yes. Okay. So the first batch of toys that we got here, of course, is the Speak and Learn. And we can see the pictures on YouTube. If you're listening, make sure you check out the video. Uh, we have uh, Speak and Learn. The Speak and Learn actually reads a book aloud to your child, and it's your child slides a magic wand over the talking track barcodes, a cordial electronic voice speak to beginning readers to help them associate printed words and phrases with their spoken sounds. We also had the Tonka Power Shift Mountain Master. Uh, this one went for $16.99. I did mention that the Speak and Learn, I forgot to mention the Speak and Learn went for $39.99. But back to the Tonka Power Shifter, uh, it was a heavy-duty mo motor. The stand-up shifter controls three forward and three reverse speeds, has detailed Jeep CJ with removable airfoil and working winch. We also had the Stay Puff Play Mower <laughs> for $11.88. The Stay Puff Play Mower has rubber-padded blade that picks up things the size of a building block and then deposits them into a catcher bag. And then the last one of these four is the E.T. figure, priced for $3.77. Ooh, this one brings back memories. Uh, E.T. figure with a weird extending neck. A real treat was the speak and spell accessory yep. for the few who weren't aware. The speak and spell scene in E.T. wasn't just a movie prop. It was a legit toy that pretty much everyone my age had. So, guys, any thoughts on these uh, first four? Uh, Lacey. Um, you know, it's funny. I don't, I didn't have any of those, but I did have the speak and spell, the speak and math, the speak and read and the speak, like I had all the ones that had the handles. This one was kind of the, the precursor to those. Okay. I think the, the, okay. the ones that you could, you did that were more like game oriented as opposed to just reading. Um, man, my sister and I, we used to fight over the, <laughs> we had a blast with the, the speak and spells and stuff. Yeah. Kyle. I remember the Tonka thing I've seen advertisements for, but I'm sorry. I'm still to this day creeped out by that. <laughs> the weird little, <laughs> it's weird because like, he's got like these red lungs, but it yeah, looks that's like he's light. That's his look, light. I know, yeah. but it looks like he got shot and he's bleeding. <laughs> well, I mean, he did all, well, didn't he? Well, <laughs> yeah. All right. The next set of toys I'm a little more excited for. Mm -hmm. uh, we have uh, G.I. <laughs> Joe three packs. I don't remember these uh, because bad guys get the best of lines and the coolest clothes. Uh, it's uh, we had. OK, so we had one that had Cobra Commander, Destro and Major Blood figures. Uh, Major Blood uh, is one of my favorite figures. Uh, I don't even know if you can find these in their original package anymore. This is what's weird. You also had one that had Scarlet, Stalker, and Snake Eyes. Uh, and then the other uh, uh, toys that we have, but hold on, the price point for the three packs was $7.97 each for three pack of G.I. Joes. Then you had Skeletor and Panther. 
<laughs> Panthor, excuse me, for three ninety seven and five forty seven. Uh, and then you had uh, the Atari games, a bunch here listed from twenty four ninety seven to thirty one ninety seven. Uh, we'll get into more of those. And then, of course, you had the uh, Star Wars figures at $2.57 each. <laughs> out uh, A lot for the Return of the Jedi one. The em- Emperor's Royal Guard was there, which is very cool. Uh, but for the uh, 2600 Atari system, they had, uh, what was around 20 games at the time. Pac-Man, Adventures of Yar, Adventure to Yar's Revenge. Uh <laughs> Atari 70, uh, 7800 over the Nintendo system. I don't know. This guy was talking about this. I, don't, I think the Nintendo is, of course, my favorite. Kyle, I need to go to you first on these uh, figures here because, uh, you know, okay. so, so there's, a, there's a few things I want to hit here. So let's talk G.I. Joe. I remember these three packs coming out. And you know what the trick was with these three packs, Kevin, if I'm remembering correctly? And correct me if I'm wrong, G.I. Joe fans out there. I think these three packs were the first time these figures were issued with the swivel action in the arms. Because if you remember, the original G.I. Joes didn't have all that articulation. Swivel arm battle grip? Yeah, the swivel arm battle grip, I think, was started with these three packs. Because how many of us had to go back and rebuy all of our original Joes because we must have the swivel arm battle action? I am looking at this picture, and it's not high res, but the Cobra Commander definitely looks like he's got a swivel arm battle grip going on here. Yeah. So I believe, and I believe right. that Cobra Commander yeah. was the first figure in GI Joe's line to get that. Yeah, part of yeah. the mail away on Cobra yeah. Commander. As well. Definitely, good point. Good. Ma- the Masters of the Universe. This is when Masters of the Universe really started to explore its weirdness with its figures. <laughs> I mean, the, the original line. Little out there, but then they just decided to okay, we're gonna just explore the full weirdness. The Panther, uh, the Panther figure with Skeletor had like a velvet fur on it. Um, the other figure I see there is Ram Man, who was basically zero articulation, but you could push his legs in, hit a thing, and he would spring out like he was ramming something. <laughs> and then, of course, you had uh, Trap Jaw and Triclops there, and everything. So, this is when Masters of the Universe really started getting into that uniqueness of it. On the Atari side, we've got this was the year the 5200 came out, which you see a lot of that in the pic- picture there. So it was kind of hitting the end of this 2600 run, but we were getting into the 5200, which had to make build an adapter so everybody could play their 2600 games. And of course, we have a whole new line of Star Wars figures thanks to Return of the Jedi. And Kevin, what I'm more jealous than anything is these prices. Yeah, I know, right? Uh, Lacey, uh, first of all, real quick, the Atari games, I'm looking at Zaxxon here. God, I love that game, especially the stand-up version. The Centipede, Ms. Pac-Man, uh, Donkey Kong Jr., Pole Position, one of my favorites. Uh, your thoughts on these toys? Okay, first things first, these screenshots are from um, the Sears catalog because I very distinctly remember mm-hmm. the little the little letters with the little squares around them so that you could pick which yep. one you wanted. Yep. And my parents, when we would have, we would be, uh, they'd give us the Sears catalog and the, um, the Toys R Us catalog. And they would say, circle everything you want. Like I'd get one color marker and my sister would get another color marker and we'd circle everything you wanted. And then like rip the page, like turn the page down so that they could, so that they wanted us to circle everything so they could pick a couple things, you know? Right. right. Um, and I just, I, believe it or not the most nostalgic thing about this stuff for me is the fact that it's from the Sears catalog 
the Sears catalog was one of the yeah. most wonderful things ever oh, for, so for children. Uh, yeah, you know, it was, it was, it yeah. Was especially that Christmas yeah. edition one. Where, it, it, was, yeah. it was always well, the Sears like, and JCPenney catalog. Yeah. yeah. For me. Yep. I, I just remember. I just remember. I was good to see what it looked like because I never saw most of it. Yeah. <laughs> you know? So yeah. Yeah, I liked. I did. I did do. We had an Atari at my house. We had the twenty six hundred, and we did play all the games. Um, and I'm very excited because Walmart this year. I just found out like two months ago that they actually have a full size seated like head to head game that has four hundred and twelve games on it. Wow. That you Wait, can. Buy. I, I, and I, I just want to throw this out for all you Atari fans out there. Atari itself just released what they call the 2600 plus. And it's a system that looks exactly like the old wood case Atari 2600. And nice. it will play all original Atari 2600 and 7,800 cartridges. Wow. Nice. Oh, so good. And so it good. only costs $14,000. No, actually, <laughs> it's, it's $139. That's not awful. Not bad. Right on. All right, guys, let's go ahead and get into the next topic. This is going to be fun. One of my favorite topics when we cover Time Warp, of course, is the music. Uh, all 40, or, gosh, 40 years. Jeez, I can't believe this. Uh, so in December, here is some other notable news that happened, of course. Uh, Fish, the band Fish. And all their weed plays their first show. <laughs> uh, on a sad and somber note, December 25th, Christmas, Marvin Gaye gives his father a Christmas present, an unlicensed Smith & Wesson 38 special caliber pistol so that Gaye could protect himself from intruders. Unfortunately, a few months later, Gaye Sr. will use it to shoot his son dead. I remember that like it was yesterday. That was big mm -hmm. news. Uh a little bit happier news here. December 31st, the 12th annual New Year's Rockin' Eve special airs on ABC with appearances by Culture Club, Rick James, Laura Branigan, Barry Manilow, the Mary Jane Girls, and David Frizzell. Anyone know who David Frizzell is without Googling it? I recognize the name, but I don't know. I don't know where I recognize it from. I feel like he's an actor, though, not a musician. Maybe you're right. I'm drawing a blank, so I don't know. But here we go. <laughs> All right. Next, we have the top Billboard Hot 100 list. And we are now down to the final 15, guys. These are the top 15 songs of 1983. And there are some bangers in here, guys. Starting with 15. She Works Hard for the Money by Donna Summer. Shame on the Moon by Bob Seger and the Silver Bullet Band. Come on, Eileen by Dexie's Midnight Runners. You and I by Eddie Rabbit and Crystal Gale. Do You Really Want to Hurt Me? Culture Club. Sweet Dreams Are Made of This by The Arrhythmics. Maniac by Michael Cimbello. Baby Come to Me by Patty Austin and James Ingram. Maneater by Holland Oates. Total Eclipse of the Heart by Bonnie Tyler. And the last top five are Beat It by Michael Jackson. Down Under by Men at Work. Flashdance, Oh What a Feeling by Irene Cara, Billy Jean by Michael Jackson, and Every Breath You Take by The Police. Kyle, what were your favorites from this top 15? This, this is, this is a, like you said, this is a murderer's row of top hits. I mean, <laughs> I, I would do my normal thing, but it, it, it's just not doing justice here. But um, obviously, I was a big Hall Night Oates, 
Holland Oats guy, so Maneater is up there. Beat it. It's huge. I mean, Flashdance became an anthem of the 80s. I mean, that's what a, what a feeling was. It? And, of course, I'm a huge Sting fan, the police, every breath you take, and Billy Jean. I mean, Michael Jackson ruled the world in 1983, and it's it's just insane the kind of music he was putting out. And I just want to quick say, because you mentioned Culture Club also in the Dick Clark special, we have Do You Really Want to Hurt Me? Culture Club was so it was it was so huge, and I know it burned itself out pretty quickly. But when it was on top, man, was Boy George and Culture Club on top. Yeah, their song their songs had a lot of great melodies. Uh, he had a great voice, and uh, they were just great radio airplay. Lacey, what are your favorites from this top fifteen? You know, it really is gonna. It's the. <laughs> um, do you really want to hurt me? I can't even think of that song without thinking of the wedding singer, which is, <laughs> yes, kind of <laughs> you know, like that just it's just it just hits it right there, like that. Yeah, it's exact. It's perfect. Um, yep. Beat it, Billy Jean. I mean, you know, all anything off the Thriller album um, is going to be something that you can you can you know kind of nod your head to. Um, I do recognize more of this list than any of the other lists before. I will say that. So being as I'm not necessarily a musical human, um, this is an impressive list because I think I recognize all but two of those songs. So that's fantastic. Also, David Frizzell was a country singer known for Honky Tonk Man and anything uh, can. So he did a lot of like the Clint Eastwood movies. Okay. Thank you for looking that up. I, I did do the Google. That's not <laughs> remembering. I'm not trying to, you know. All right. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I think my favorite song from these this top fifteen is "Sweet Dreams" by the Eurythmics. I freaking love that song. I it, it is it just it's a stamp in time for me. And "Man Eater" by Hall and Oates is definitely there as well. Um, Do you ever call the Call and Oates hotline? I, I've heard I've heard of it, but no, I have not. Man Eater's number two. I think it's, it's yeah. fantastic. You gotta call it. Look it up. Uh, call and Oates. Call it out. Nine songs fantastic. for free, just on the phone anytime you want. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Kevin, okay. right, so, I just want to, oh, sorry, I just want to mention too, real quick, one of the greatest band names of all time here, Dexie's Midnight Runners. Yes. Yeah, that's a good one. <laughs> that is a good one. Yeah. But not a good video. I'm sorry. No. That video is horrible. <laughs> it's cringeworthy. <laughs> all right, guys. So we have already talked about the top. 30 shows of 1983, but I got a question for you and I did want to just mention them real quick Uh, from number one down to 30. The most popular show was Dallas, of course. And uh, then it goes to 60 minutes, dynasty, a team, Simon and Simon, Magnum PI, Falcons, Crest, Kate and Alley, hotel, Cagney and Lacey, knots landing, the ABC Sunday night movie, the ABC um, uh, was it the ABC a Monday night movie. I think it was uh, TV's bloopers and practical jokes after mash, the fall guy, the love boat riptide, the Jeffersons scarecrow and Mrs. King Sun uh, Monday night football, Monday night movie, new heart, the facts of flight. Wait a minute. Hold on. Monday night movie. And then and Monday night football are right next to each other. So it means half the people are watching football and half the people are like, what sports ball I'm watching this movie. <laughs> that's the way I'm, that's the way I'm looking at that. Followed by New Heart, Facts of Life, Tuesday Night Movie, Webster, Alice, Knight Rider, Hardcastle, and McCormick, and Trapper John MD. 
So my, I have two questions for you guys. First of all, pick one that is your favorite of this entire list. Pick one you have not seen. And if you were forced to watch, watch while you were like, let's say laid up, you know, sick, or you had a time to marathon it and you haven't seen it, what would it be? Kyle, starting with you. This is a tough one. There's some good shows on What's here. your favorite? And which one would you marathon that you haven't seen? Okay. I think I'm think I'm honestly I'm gonna have to go with the A team as my favorite. Okay. Um marathon one that I haven't seen. Problem is I've seen most of these. Um you know what? I, I I would say if if I'm gonna marathon one that I really didn't watch a whole lot at that time, it's hotel because hotel. Okay, all right, cool. Uh, Lacey, what is your favorite and which one would you marathon that you haven't seen? Okay, my favorite's the fall guy. Oh, nice. Um followed closely by Scarecrow's like it's it's a it's a real hard question between Scarecrow's and King and the Fall Guy. I think the Fall Guy because they treated women better. Um <laughs> but I, I yes. when I when I'm looking I'm looking through this list and I've seen everything with the exception of all of the like Sunday night, Monday night, like the, I mean, and I'm sure I saw most right. of those when they aired. Um, I've seen, like, I've lit, I'm looking at, you know, and you can't pay me enough to watch Monday night football at reruns. Um, so, so I don't think there's anything that I would rewatch cause I've seen all of them. Wow. I'm looking at, that's, a, that's impressive. Yeah. Cause there's some of these I have not seen. So yeah. <laughs> um, so what would you, what would you marathon then? That's not your favorite. Oh, um, it, that's not my favorite. It would be any of the football ones, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't do it. <laughs> not, not the sports, not the sports. I'm yeah. talking about the TV uh, show. Yeah. I mean, I didn't dislike any of them um, except for sport. I just not a sports person. I would say like the one I liked the least would probably be like one of the like dynasty Falcon crusty kind of things. Cause they were okay. so dramatic with like all the shoulder pads in the world. Um, right. Okay. Yeah. It was like the kind of shoulder pads and hairspray kind of situation. Gotcha. Not okay. my favorites. For me. Oh, Kyle. Yeah. I can answer your question, but I have a question for both of you real quick on this list too. No, no, no. no. I get to do my thing first. Hold on. I I'll say my thing first, I have a question. When you're done, I have a question for both. Okay. Of you. Okay. All right, all right. I gotta, I, I gotta do mine first. So Knight Rider is my favorite, uh, very close to uh, 18 though, but Knight Rider for me, but the one show I, there's several of these I have not seen a lot of these nighttime soaps I haven't seen, but the one show that I never watched that I kind of wish I did, but my parents w weren't into it. They wouldn't watch it as is. Uh, I'd like to watch Simon and Simon. <laughs> I, I would marathon Simon and Simon. Uh, if, if I had it, I, I would give that if I had the time to. So Kyle, they, had, they had crossovers with Riptide. So you kind of got to watch them both. I, I've heard that. Yes. Yeah. Kyle, what was your two questions? Well, my, my question is this, because as we've been going through this list and now looking at it all in front of me, this felt like a really big transition year in television, where we had a lot of shows that were real popular at the end of the 70s and those early 80s kind of starting to wind down. But we had a whole new generation of a different type of television really starting up in 83. And I'm just curious if you guys looking at this list kind of feel that same way. Uh, Lacey? For me, television is always kind of transitive. I mean, it, you're watching what's going on in the world because everything would kind of start mirroring what was happening. Um, and I think this is kind of the time when that started becoming more um, specific. You know, they started hiring people to come in as consultants. They started hiring people, you know, on, you know, TV shows like ER and stuff like that. Like, or I guess this is pre-ER, but, you know, earlier on, they started kind of. Seen elsewhere. 
Yeah, Sin Elsewhere or Chicago Hope, maybe. No, um, Chicago Hope was closer to ER. So. Is that okay? Um, but, you know, they started hiring people to come in and, and, you know, come and sit in the writer's rooms and kind of do that kind of thing. They started kind of, they stopped force feeding, like spoon feeding the audience. They started yeah. kind of letting the audience be smart, which is, you know, so I think that right now is kind of one of those sort of. I, yeah. I was watching more TV at this time, Kyle. So I felt like this was taking a turn. You got, yeah, I think you have a point there. Uh, I was watching more of it and uh, you know, there was just so much more to talk about. They, it, I, I felt like this was like the new golden age of television, maybe the platinum age of television. If you look, the golden age television is what the fifties, maybe uh, oh. I felt like this was, I could be wrong, but you, you get my point. I felt like the fifties yeah. really started pushing the television and, and, you know, people pulling up TV dinners and watching TVs, but I felt like the eighties, it really kind of was pushing it into another era. Well, it became family oriented, but it's, it, it was the fact that people were watching TV during dinner became the adventure hour. You would watch something that was not yep. the news. Yep. They had something, it would, it would basically be like the end of the news. And then you'd have, you know, a, an adventure type of movie. That's why they end up with like the Monday night movie, Tuesday night movie, Thursday, all that yeah. kind of stuff, because they wanted families to kind of, yeah, you're absolutely right. Yeah. Kyle? Well, I was just going to say, because when you think about looking at some of these shows, you have the shows that push the risque a little bit more with like Dallas and Dynasty because they were on later at night. And we were starting to see this a little bit of of more sex in our shows, too, and how the women were portrayed and just what was going on. But you had a lot more, I think, a lot more action and hardcore action for guys on television, too. When you think about Knight Rider, the A-Team, Simon, yep. Simon Magnum, B.I., Things like that. So I, th I really think it was, it was, we were really transitioning into the heart of 80s television in this year. Yeah. I think there's another social thing that we have to look at, though. When we look at the television and the fact that all these uh, television uh, channels wanted people to come together as a family. In 1973, that's when women, I believe it's 73, that's when women were allowed to have credit cards with their own names. They were allowed to have. Um, you know, get their own bank accounts, things like that. They weren't just their their father's daughter or their husband's wife, right? So you get a ten, 10 years after that, you find these women who are not going to put up with all the abuse or whatever. So you, the divorce rate has skyrocketed and everyone's trying to get the families to come back together. So a lot of the programming was trying to be like family focal. I think there's a social... Yeah look at it. Like, yeah, no, you're, 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 abs you're absolutely yeah. right. And there was a lot more stronger female roles that were coming yep. in too as well. So yeah, that's, a, that's a great point. Yeah. Uh, so there's a few shows that were debuting this, this during December and one that ended in December. And one of my favorite shows, which didn't last long, unfortunately was auto man that would debuted uh, yes. ABC <laughs> in uh, December 15th. And then a show called Masquerade, which I don't remember at all, but the people that in it, I find fascinating. It's called, it's, uh, it was about an intelligent organization that recruits civilian specialists for individual missions requiring new skills. It's a Glenn A. Larson production. So he's been busy starring Rod Taylor, Kirstie Alley, and Greg Evigan. I don't remember this show. Uh, I don't. Oliver Reed was in it in episode two. John Saxon was in an episode. Mm -hmm. I, I got to look this up and see if it's somewhere, but I have a feeling it's not. 
And then also, uh, um, was it ending or was it beginning? Hold on, I got to find out real quick here. Uh, was Mr. Smith. Uh, this was ending in December of 83. And Mr. Smith was an orangutan accidentally raised to genius human level intelligence, secretly works for the Washington, D.C. as a political advisor. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> I'm trying to see if there's anyone famous in this. Uh, oh, my God. Joaquin Phoenix was in one episode. Donna Michi was in one episode. Uh, wow. That is weird. That is going to be a <laughs> fight. It's funny because right now we have Oscar winner. Um, uh, what is it? Uh, yeah. Joaquin Phoenix now playing Napoleon. <laughs> no. Yeah. Joaquin. Yeah. God. Kevin, could you watch this movie? Cause it is a monkey wearing clothes. <laughs> <laughs> and then also we had it. I do remember the show. We had a, a TV show ending called just our luck. 30 minute comedy, a modern city guy gains a genie, a hip wisecracking African-American named Shabu stars TK Carter, Richard Gillian and Ellen maxed. Mm -hmm. I remember TK Carter. He was a thing for a while. Uh, he mm -hmm. had his own show for a while. Mr. Carter, was that what it was, Kyle? In the 90s? I think so, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's that's in, and Richard Mall was an episode as well. So well, the show was created by Charles Grodin, of all people, too. Oh, wow, there you go. Uh, mm -hmm. we had some 83 uh was it celebrity film debuts as well, guys. Uh Kiefer Sutherland and Max Dugan returns. Which is one of the best I love this movie. I've never Sorry, seen it. I'll be I've okay. Never seen it. I didn't mean I've, to. I didn't mean to. No, I've never seen it, and I heard it's fun. So yeah. Uh, Leah Thompson uh, was in Jaws 3D. J.T. Walsh was in Eddie Macon's Run. Julie Walters in Educating Rita. Lynn Whitfield in Doctor Detroit, and Kathleen Wilhoit in Private School. No. All right, guys. Now it is time for the movies of 1983. <clears throat> As I said, guys, this is December, and there were some hitters in this one. Really good ones here. And uh, I'm excited for that we don't have anything that on the cutting room floor, which is good. But the first film I had never seen before, guys, was Christine. However, I did find it streaming for free online. Horror film, $21 million it made in its original theatrical run. 1957 in Detroit, a red Plymouth Fury is built and in, is the cause of two accidents, one of them fatal, still in the assembly line. 21 years later, a nerdy boy buys the strange car with an evil mind of its own and his nature starts to change to reflect it. Of course, directed by legendary John Carpenter based of course on Stephen King's book stars Keith Gordon, John Stockwell, Alexander Paul and Harry Dean Stanton. Kyle, give us some trivia. Some trivia on Christine. Stephen King's popularity was so high at this time. This film went into production before the book was even published. Wow. And so that's, that's at that, this time, that's really saying something. 15% of the budget was just on the cars, but by the end of the filming, all but two were destroyed. <laughs> Portions of the film, particularly Arnie's neighborhood, were shot in the same South Pasadena neighborhood that director John Carpenter used in Halloween. Which is where I've been. <laughs> yeah. And finally, I find this very interesting. Stephen King chose a 58th Plymouth Fury for Christine because it was a forgotten car. He didn't want a car that already had a legend attached to it 
like the 50s Thunderbird. I think that was a wise decision. I'm kind of a car guy. I love old cars and I have not seen a lot of Plymouth Furies out there. And I've kind of always been curious about this film. I'm not a big horror guy. Uh, and I know you're not too as well, Lacey, but I actually thoroughly enjoyed this film because it wasn't scary. It was just, it was kind of creepy because this car had a mind of its own. I love some of the practical effects they used to when he, the car starts to repair itself mm-hmm. and, you know, had take a mind on its own. But I, I gotta be honest with you guys. And I, I have a question I'm going to throw out there. One of my favorite, uh, it is considered a horror film is a movie in the late seventies called the car possessed by the demon goes on a killing spree. Uh, and the car is fantastic. It looks cool. It makes his demonic sound going to put it out there thinking maybe someone might've borrowed some ideas from it. Just going <laughs> to throw that out there. Kyle, Christine, your thoughts. Well, first of all, this is an interesting film. This is a time when, if you put Stephen King's name on something, it kind of inspired fear into you right then and there because yep. of just Stephen King's reputation. This is this is one of his average films. I mean, Steve, that's the thing with Stephen King. It took a while for him to really hit on some big films with with his properties. This one isn't bad. It's not like you said, Kevin. It's really not that scary. The cast really doesn't stand out that much. I, I remember Alexandra Paul more for her run on Baywatch than anything else she did in her career. But what I find interesting, Kevin, is you mentioned the car and we have Christine and we have the car, but neither of them were the scariest car to me. You know what the scariest car to me was, Kevin? What? It was car. Yeah. The, the evil version of Kit. Yes, this is true. <laughs> I, I'm I'm going to still go with uh, the car uh, from the late '70s horror film because that one is really really cool. Lacey, I know I'll you're a horror fan. I'll go. I'll go with the Wraith. Ooh, oh, the car well, the nah, that's not really the car. I know that's not really scary. But every that's time, just, saw, for me, every time I saw the car, I was like, "Ooh, something you know, something bad's going to happen." You know. Have you seen Christine, Lacey? I have seen pieces of christine <laughs> i have not seen okay. the whole thing i don't go in for the blood and the guts and the gore and the whatever um i will it's say really that not though in this movie there's not no, there wasn't that, that was kind of tame actually i'll be honest yeah. with you. there was well, there was there was implied violence of course and uh the the car was just scary you know this is where i first learned of keith gordon okay um because you know the posters and the trailers and all that kind of stuff and this was the beginning of his like you know little I mean, he had a good four or five years there with Christine and then Legend of Billy Jean and yep. uh, Back to School and Combat. And, and he's become a successful director. Oh, yeah. He's, he's a huge yeah. director now. Like, he's on yeah. now. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. But as far as the, the the movie is concerned, I don't know that I'll ever actually watch the whole thing. Gotcha. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I the thing that I, I really liked about it, though, was that he's this nerdy guy who uh, gets this car and he has to deal with this like jerk um, uh, junkyard car guy and he he builds it up himself and then um, he starts to change. He becomes more confident, uh, you know, not like a good person, good person, but you. it's fun to see his transformation when the, the car becomes loyal to him and vice versa. And I was pleasantly surprised by it. I'm not a horror guy, but it wasn't, it wasn't very scary. It wasn't very bloody, but it was just cool. You know, 
Creepy. Liked it. All right, guys. <clears throat> Say hello to my little friend. Al Pacino in Scarface made just over $44 million in its original theatrical run. In 1980, Miami, a determined Cuban immigrant, Tony Montana takes over a drug cartel and succumbs to greed and lots of bullets. Directed by Brian De Palma, writer Oliver Stone, one of the writers there, stars, of course, Al Pacino, Michelle Pfeiffer, Stephen Bauer, Mary Elizabeth Mastrantonio, Robert Loggia, uh, Paul Shinar and F. Murray Abram. One of the most iconic, I guess, gangster films of all time, uh, message movies of all time. Uh, Kyle, please hit us up with some Al Pacino Scarface trivia. During the scene where Tony and Elvira are sitting in the Cadillac at the car dealership, Al Pacino surreptitiously slips on the hat that Michelle Pfeiffer was wearing while she was looking away, which was not scripted. When she turns back and sees him wearing it, her amused reaction was genuine, and to her credit, she stayed in character and ad-libbed a line. Brian De Palma decided to keep that unscripted exchange in the movie to show Elvira's gradual warming up to Montana. When director Brian De Palma submitted the film to the MPAA, they gave it an X rating. He then made some cuts and resubmitted it a second time. Again, the film was given an X rating, one of the reasons apparently being that Octavio the Clown was shot too many times. <laughs> he yet again made some further cuts and submitted it a third time. Yet again, it was given an X rating. De Palma refused to cut the film any further to qualify it for an R. He and producer Martin Bring arranged a hearing with the MPAA. So, yeah. This interesting. That must have been an interesting uh, meeting there. Yeah. I found this interesting too. Stephen Bauer got the role without even auditioning. During the audition process, casting director Alexi G Gordon saw Bauer and instantly noted that he was right for the role of Manny a judgment, which was with which both Brian De Palma and Martin Brigman agreed. Um, the prop firearms were equipped with electronic synchronizing devices so that they would only fire when the camera shutter was open. The result was that the gun's muzzle flashes were much more visible and consistent than in most films. Mm. And finally, in order to create the most accurate picture possible, Oliver Stone spent time in Florida and the Caribbean interviewing people on both sides of the law for research it got harry stone admitted to the research process it gave me all this color i wanted to do a sundressed drenched tropical third world gangster cigar sexy miami film unfortunately while penning the screenplay stone was also dealing with his own cocaine habit which gave him insight into what the drug can do to the user <laughs> talk about uh living life real here for uh, mr oliver stone I uh, recently actually picked up uh, the 4K edition here. I just want to show this to you. And uh, um, I, it, it comes with the Blu-ray as well. This is the uh, the gold edition. There's also a platinum edition that has a bunch of other special features on it. But this is one of the most iconic gangster films of all time. Uh, and for reason. And also, too, the lifestyle of the 80s in Miami with the cocaine boom was also huge news all over the states because of the violence that was going on, the huge cocaine um, trafficking that was going on. Uh, later, Miami Vice would come out. But this, and there was a huge development boom because of the cocaine money that was going on. And, uh, this movie just kind of hit the right time, the right spot, of course, uh, you know, setting up the store of what really happened with Castro, you know, making all these people go to Florida and getting rid of all of, all of the people in jail as well. 
I, I love this movie. It's uh, it's fascinating for the lifestyle. And uh, it's also, I think, a good look at what happens when um, you take things too far and paranoia sets in. And I think probably the reason why we hear the phrase, don't get high on your own supply. <laughs> Lacey, have you seen Scarface? I saw a clip of about uh, three minutes in film school and decided that it was super intense. And that was just not where I was looking to go. Like, I don't, it, it felt very dramatic. And as we both know, I'm not a, a drama person. I like the, uh, the comedies and the actions. So, um, no, I've seen bits and bobs. I think this movie has enough action to almost be uh, a half drama, half action film. Kyle, your thoughts on Scarface. So I'm, I'm, I'm going to be honest with you. I'm of a mixed bag on Scarface. It's a phenomenal film. Um, Michelle Pfeiffer is beyond gorgeous in this movie. I mean, she is breathtaking in this film, but, and, and it's an amazing performance by Pacino and everybody in it. But I'm also, let me ask you, I'm, I'm over this film. And the reason <laughs> I'm, well, but the reason I am over this film is because in the late nineties and early two thousands, it was very much adopted by the hip hop culture. And I felt like this film and so many aspects of it were forced fed down our throats during that time frame, they were making video games. It was referenced in every movie. There was, they were taking cuss of it and putting in movies and, you know, people were quoting it all the time. It just became like everything to a, a whole group of people. And it was, it was a very popular group of people at the time. And it's, it's not about, it's just about, it's just like, okay, I'm sick of everywhere I turn or something Scarface. And yeah. it's just, yeah, it just, it just was oversaturation. It, it, the best thing I can every hip hop star had the poster, you know, in their yeah. in their their crib on the episode of Cribs, you know, <laughs> you know. And but I, I think the thing I can compare it to is kind of my feeling about the Christmas Story yeah. movie. I'm just uh, over; it's overexposed and over oversaturated to me at this point. Lacey, what did you just say? Was this Michelle Pfeiffer's first role after Grease Two? Pretty much, I think so. Yeah, because Grease um, Two was '82, right? Like, yeah. And I found mm -hmm. the trivia about Stephen Bauer interesting because uh, I think he's one of the strong points of this film. And I remember when we did the, <laughs> I remember when we did the, uh, uh, the podcast uh, for the Couch Potato Theater for Valley Girl. There was a question whether or not Stephen Bauer was an, uh, a character in that, and I think we came to the consensus that, that was not the case. But uh, Stephen Bauer is really good in this because the 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 storyline that I always found fascinating was the um, was Tony's sister. Uh, and how he just did not want her to date anyone. And, uh, you know, he almost got to the point to where like, he wished like he loved her a little too much, but couldn't. And, um, it was just heartbreaking to see him, uh, spoiler alert, kill Steven Bauer, uh, for that particular reason. So good movie though. I enjoy watching it. What's that Lacey? Heartbreaking. That's creepy. Yeah, it is creepy. Uh, yeah. And but the uh, Mary, uh, uh, was it? Mary, Mary Stuart, uh, Mary, Mary uh, Elizabeth <laughs> Master Antonio. Yes, she was fantastic in this film. Uh, you could really see her acting coming around, and uh, she was she was fantastic in this. All right, guys. Next, we have sudden impact. Clint Eastwood. Made about $67 million in its original theatrical run. 
It's about a vicious serial killer on the loose in San Francisco, and the police trace a link to a small town uh, in San Paolo, which is further down the coast when Harry Callahan upsets the press and the mayor in his usual style. He's shipped out of town to investigate while the heat is on with the help of his new 44 Magnum handgun. Harry goes on a trail, leaving behind a usual trail of dead criminals along the way. Uh, starring Clint Eastwood, Sandra Locke, and Pat Hingle. Kyle, what's some trivia on Sudden Impact? There's some very interesting trivia on this. Of course, it's the only Dirty Harry movie directed by Clint Eastwood. Charles B. Pierce wrote the line, go ahead and make my day. The line was inspired by a warning that his father would say to Pierce when he was a child. According to Pierce, his father warned him, when I home come, come home tonight and the yard has not been mowed, you're going to make my day. It was the highest grossing of all the Dirty Harry films. It, Of course, of the five Dirty Harry movies, it was th this movie that used the catch a phrase, go ahead and make my day, whereupon it became synonymous with the Harry Callahan character and became popularized into the vernacular popular culture. Although Clint Eastwood made the phrase, go ahead and make my day famous, it was originally used a year earlier by Gary Swanson in Vice Squad. Swanson, who played a Hollywood vice cop, said the line, go ahead, scumbag, make my day to Wings Hauser, who played a pimp during a bust. The quote is often erroneously attributed by most people to be from the first movie of this franchise, Dirty Harry. The phrase was also voted in a 2005 poll by the American Film Institute as the number six most memorable line in movie history. The phrase was so well publicized and became so popular that many members of the public knew about it by the time the movie opened. It's estimated that Eastwood earned about $30 million for this movie. Around this time, Eastwood's salary on movies took 60% of the profit with 40% from Warner Brothers. That's a lot of money to, for someone to make during that time. Yeah. <laughs> it's that huge. Um, that's still a lot of money to make. I'm just throwing it out there. Yes. It, it, that's still a lot of money. <laughs> yes, that is a lot. Mm. Kyle, what do you uh, what, what do you remember of Sudden Impact? Okay, so my dad was a huge Dirty Harry fan. And he had all the movies. And Sudden Impact, in my opinion, is the best of the Dirty Harry films. Obviously, it's probably the most popularized because of the phrase and everything that goes with it, but dirty, this movie made Harry, dirty, Harry Callahan. I think also one of the most memorable characters in movie history, especially as a cop in, in movies and Eastwood. It's what it's outside of his Westerns. It's in my mind is one of so one of the greatest best characters and best performances. And this, I, this is one of those movies that um, I, I'll watch anytime. It's, it's, it's that good. The thing that I liked about this film was, and I for, it had been a while since I see, seen it, and I just want to show it. I got this Dirty Harry four film collection, and that's how I ended up watching it. Because you, know, you have all the Dirty Harry films on here. Well, almost all of them. You don't have Deadpool, which is actually my favorite, <laughs> to be honest with you, for for reasons. Uh, I liked how, though, in the trivia you were mentioning, Kyle, about the episode, the movie Vice Squad, because we covered it last year mm -hmm. in '82, because we thought Wings Hauser was going to be a thing. Uh, and so I think his son is becoming more power, more famous than, than he is now. But this is interesting because Sandra Locke is basically the serial killer, but she is basically on a revenge because of what happened to her. Uh, she was, uh, she was raped and, uh, she wanted to get revenge because I think a friend of hers died. If I remember correctly, she's the one going around killing these horrible people. And you're, you're kind of rooting for her when she does it, but the police are like trying to find out who this is. And then at the end, Clint finds out who she is, and but there's like worse people than her, and they they, they 
they kill them and she does and he doesn't he lets her go basically he, he the the the, the murders were alert. Pinned, <laughs> the, the murderers were pinned on someone else that they killed basically and so you're like yeah but uh i'd be honest with you though i know I think there was a thing going on between uh, Sandra Locke and him. I think they were like boyfriend, girlfriend, or I don't know if they were actually married, but uh, um, I, I thought she was good in this. So that, that was my takeaway from it. Um, Lacey, did you ever see Sudden Impact? Okay. So I had not ever seen a hair, Dirty Harry movie. And I don't know, like 10 years ago, somebody was like, what? How can you never have seen a Dirty Harry movie? You were a film major. You have a film degree. What is wrong with you? Oh my goodness. So I decided that I was going to watch all of them. And I did. And I watched them all in like one weekend. And I couldn't tell you which one was which. I have <laughs> I binge watched them, right? And so I binge watched them like a decade ago. And I didn't dislike them. They had a very specific... Um, kind of dirty, like gritty feel to them, which was not necessarily my favorite type of movie, but it was, they were very well written. They were interesting to watch. I didn't get bored at like the third one or anything and turn them off. Um, but I honestly couldn't tell you which one's which. Gotcha. Okay. Like, cause they all kind of, you know. I, the, the the last one, I'm guessing that's the fifth one. Uh, Deadpool is the one that sat with me most because uh, Guns N' Roses had an appearance in it. That was uh, uh, Jim Carrey uh, singing a Guns N' Roses song, being a uh, a rock star who was killed because of the Deadpool. And Liam Neeson was there in it as well. And that's why that one was memorable for me because it just hit it at, at the right time. And that one's my favorite, but it's such an iconic character. So. Right on. Next, guys, we have Silkwood drama made about $35 million in its theatrical run. Uh, the, uh, the poster says, on November 13th, 1974, Karen Silkwood, an employee of a nuclear facility, left to meet with a reporter from the New York Times. She never got there. A worker at a plutonium processing plant is purposely contaminated, psychologically tortured, and possibly murdered to prevent her from exposing Worker safety violations on the plant. Director was Mike Nichols. Writers was Nora Ephron and Alice Arlene. Stars, of course, Meryl Streep, Kurt Russell, Cher, Craig T. Nelson, Fred Ward, and Ron Silver. Kyle, give us some trivia on Silkwood. Okay, well, first and foremost, this movie is based on a true story. The picture was released nine years after the events depicted in the film in 1974. The scene where Karen sets off the radiation alarms actually happened. Her level of contamination was 40 times the safe level. Reportedly, the production on this film set a legal precedent in the U.S. Supreme Court regarding the protection of confidential sources for filmmakers under the First Amendment, as is the case for media reporters. Um, real to real, the Hirsch case and First Amendment protection for films makers confident sources of information. The movie was nominated for five Academy Awards, but failed to win any. Okay. I had, I remember this film. I remember it coming on from time to time. Never had any interest in watching it. Uh, I was kind of like pulling Lacey. Uh, too much drama. I can't get in. But at this time. Pulling Lacey. What's that? What's that, Lacey? Pulling a Lacey. Too much Yes. Drama. I was pulling Lacey. Little did I know. But of course, the threat of nuclear war was there. We had, of course, um, uh, Chernobyl, and 
you know, we were afraid that one of these was going to blow up like three mile Island and all this other kind of stuff and get worse. And I never really wanted to see this film, but I, I, I had an interest in wanting to see it for this podcast. And I tried to find this thing streaming somewhere. I tried to find it on, on YouTube and parts and all I could find was just moments and scenes and stuff like that. So instead what I decided to do is actually watch a documentary about this. And that's what I did. I forgot the exact one that I watched, but it was like a 40 minute documentary. I think that aired on TV. And of course her death is, um, uh, which was a car accident is the question is up in air of whether or not she was run off the road or if she was just, uh, a mistake that she did. But some people think that she was killed because of what she knew and what she was going to do. Uh, I wish I, I hopefully I do want to see this film because I'm kind of curious to see these actors, especially Cher and, and uh, Kurt Russell, big Kurt Russell, but it's also an early Mike Nichols film. And I, I you know, I have liked his films and stuff like that. Uh, Lacey, I'm assuming you haven't seen this. <laughs> I've seen, I, well, okay, I've seen, again, bits and pieces. I got to the point where I was just like, oh, God. Uh, like, I can't watch something that just never gets happy. Like, it never right. happy. Yeah. Like, it's so sad. The whole, it's so depressing and then terrible. And then after that, they top it off with a little bit of, ah, spritzle of bleh. <laughs> like, it, it was just, <laughs> don't get me wrong, there's a reason that people know the term Silkwood Shower. It's a very, very popular movie. Like, it, like it made a, a lot of headlines. A lot of people talked about it. Even if they didn't watch the movie, they wanted to know about the situation because it, you know, this brought it to light. And then, of course, like, you know, the trivia was saying with, um, you know, it, this did cause, I mean, this was on the news. They, I mean, there was, there was uh, legal precedent set by a film. You know, there, this yeah. was, this was an important film in, not just film history, but in history, history, in legal history, um, I did not see it. Gotcha. In full. All right. Kyle, have you seen Silkwood? I have seen Silkwood. I actually saw it for media class that I was in high school, actually. Really? Yeah. yeah. Um, it's a one and done. I mean, <laughs> and the only reason why I say that, Kevin, it's just, it's one of those movies you don't want to revisit and you don't want to rewatch. Yeah. It's, it's a yeah. phenomenal performance. It has one of, and out the whole Silkwood shower thing scene is a huge thing, but it's fascinating when you think when this came out, because obviously what it was dealing with and how big in a nuclear mindset we were with nuclear, nuclear power, radiation and things like that. And it is a true story. It's phenomenal performances. I will tell anybody if you want to see it for the performances and what's in it. Great. But, be ready to have a comedy on standby afterwards. Get your <laughs> Otherwise, you need to start taking lithium immediately. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so I, I think I, it's got a very, very big place in movie history. There, there's no question about that. But yeah, this is this is just one of those ones you watch it because you know of this film, you know the history of this film, and if yeah. you're a movie buff, you probably should see it because of that. But it's not one of those ones that's just like, oh, I'm going to pop in Silkwood on Saturday night. <laughs> yeah, it looks it looks like a tough watch, but I am curious about it just because uh, I, I I find that event fascinating. And I fully expect when you get ready to watch it, I fully expect a text that says, hey, y'all, what's up? Just getting ready to pop in Silkwood and have a few beers and relax and get my feet done. Just no, no. something. It's just... <laughs> Lacey, we have on Culture Clash... Our show we have the VHS double double header. Okay, it's it's Silkwood and the day after. Come on, <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. that's funny. That's a good one. No, 
Well, what do you say, guys? Let's go ahead and light it up for the next film here. The next one we have is DC Cab. Thank Comedy. you. Made just over $16 million run here. And the poster says, at DC Cab, when these guys hit the streets, guess what? It's the fan. A tale of a hapless group of cabbies and a rundown cab company. I'm going to show you my DVD right here. Here we go. Check out that. Yeah. Uh, who are owned by Harold. Albert comes to town with a dream of starting his own cab company, but needs to motivate Harold's employees to want to make something out of themselves. It's only when Albert is kidnapped that the cabbies must decide whether or not they're loyal to Albert and his cause. Check out my DVD with Mr. T right there. Yes. Uh, director Joel Schumacher. Yes, that Joel Schumacher, of course, from, uh, um, oh, I don't know, Batman Forever. And, of course, Lost Boys, Lost Boys and it. many others. So, yeah. Uh, writers were uh, Topper Carew and Joel Schumacher himself. Stars Max Gale from Barney Miller, if I remember correctly. Adam Baldwin, who's great in this film. Mr. T, Gary Busey, Bill Maher, and Paul Rodriguez. Kyle, hit us up with some trivia on okay. DC Cat. There's a piece of trivia, but I need to address this because I've known about this for a while with this movie, and I just got to make a comment on it. This movie, you have one of the most popular people in the United States in Mr. T. He's at WrestleMania. He's doing the A-Team. He's everywhere. And you put him as the centerpiece of this film when everybody wants to see him. Every kid in America loves Mr. T, Rocky, all that. And you put him in a rated R film oops <laughs> <laughs> what what are you saying kyle it made 16 million dollars <laughs> yeah uh, uh -huh. this is where pg-13 if it would have existed at this time would have been much help to this movie but anyway um just how cool mr t was during principal photography of what in washington dc he spent most some of his free time off the set visiting correctional facilities and children's hospitals um, Jim Carrey auditioned for this film. Director Shul Joel Schumacher turned him down because he felt Carrey was too talented to be in an ensemble. This film was a huge international hit. It was one of Poland's highest grossing film comedies of all time and won Best Comedic Picture in Turkey. I um, find that so weird and just yeah. random. <laughs> Europeans and their crazy sense of humor. Um, the film song, The Dream, Hold On to Your Dreams, sung by Irene Cara was the highest ranking track from the movie soundtrack, pe peaking at number 37 spot on the Billboard Hot 100 in February of 1984. Kyle, your thoughts on DC Cab? DC Cab is one of those movies that I think you have to put in a time capsule because of who is in it and the ensemble that was in it. Because it, one, it's Joel Schumacher. Two, you've got Adam Baldwin, Gary Busey, Bill Maher, and Paul Rodriguez, plus Mr. T. Those are all. This is like at the time one of the biggest bunch of that guy outside of Mr. T. I mean, Mr. T is the star, but you look at how Adam Baldwin's career went, Gary Busey's, Bill Maher, and Paul Rodriguez. This is such a unique gra grabbing of people. Is this movie great? Not necessarily, but it definitely rep it's a representation of the time period without a doubt. And I'll tell you what, I will still take a DC cab over an Uber. <laughs> <laughs> Lacey, your thoughts on DC Cab? It is a fun romp of a movie, which is nice because, you know, we didn't have a lot of those this time around. 
<clears throat> but um, I will say, I think I'm like, I'm like 80% sure that I have had Adam Baldwin sign my copy. Um, he comes to Dragon Con a lot and, um, you know, he's invited there a lot. And so I kind of ran out of like Firefly and, and Chuck and st- other stuff to get him. And I was like, oh, wait, wait, he was in DC, you know, <laughs> so I'm pretty sure I had him sign that um, as well. Um, just for funsies. Gotcha. Uh, so confession, I hadn't seen this film until about two years ago. Never seen it before. I heard about it. I remember Mr. T was in it. I bought this DVD and I didn't realize it was rated R, Kyle. <laughs> <laughs> Literally like in the first few minutes, boobies everywhere. <laughs> And uh, yeah, uh, and then uh, Adam Baldwin, I'm a huge fan of. I met him actually. You're right, uh, Lacey. He he, uh, he finally came to Dragon Con after a break through Chuck. Uh, I don't know if you know this, but I shared a story about how I was trying to get my entire uh, Firefly card collection signed, and Kyle and I both had, he had a poster or a eight by ten, right, Kyle? That you were trying to get signed, right? Right behind me, back here. <laughs> yeah. And uh, he was, like, not coming f- to Dragon Con for a while. And it's because he was doing Chuck. And uh, uh, and finally, he came. And uh, I ended up getting that card signed. But uh, I told him I was a huge fan of his originally from My Bodyguard. Yep. And what that what that movie meant to me. And every time I see uh, a certain car, I see carburetor parts from motorcycles. I always think of that film. And he was touched by that. And he gave me a little... Uh, my bodyguard uh, sheet and he signed it for me and gave it to me for free. It was very sweet. And he says, Kevin, I'll be your bodyguard. I was just like, Oh, nice. uh, but he was, uh, he was fun in this, in this film. And I do like the ensemble cast, uh, not putting Jim Carrey in it. God, I think it would have been great if Carrey was in this film. I'm not sure which role he would have played, but I thought that that would have been really, really cool. Uh, but yeah, it was kind of one of those movies. I was like really glad to finally see and go back and, and discover it for the first time. It, it is a fun film, but yes, it is a rated Next, guys, we've got Gorky Park. Yes, Gorky Park. Uh, and it's theatrical run, made about $16 million. And uh, it is about an investigator on a Moscow police force relentlessly pursuing the solution to a triple homicide which occurred in Moscow's Gorky Park. He finds that no one really wants to solve the crime because it's just the tip of the complex conspiracy, which involves the highest levels of the Moscow city government. Director Michael Apted uh, stars William Hurt, Lee Marvin, Brian Dennehy, Joanna Pacula, and Ian, the Emperor McDiarmid. (laughs) Kyle, you got some trivia for me here on Gorky Park. Yeah, reportedly the production was denied access for filming in Moscow, Russia. Holinsky, Finland, stood in for Moscow in this movie. Because of the Cold War, Gorky Park could not be filmed on actual location. The film group decided to come to Helsinki, the architecture of which is similar to Russian architecture. Gorky Park in this movie was not the real Gorky Park. Russia was actually portrayed by uh, Kazanamini Park in Helsinki, Finland. When Lee Marvin arrived on the set in Helsinki, he sent to the local hospital. He was sent to the local hospital because of his longtime illness due to alcoholism. The director, Michael Apted, rehearsed with Marvin in the hospital bedroom. Producer Howard W. Koch said of making this movie whilst doing press for the picture, we couldn't even get into Russia to film it. And I can't say any of us were surprised, but that's what makes it so special. We were chalking up a first here. Nobody 
ever made a modern thriller like this in Russia. It's just a pity they don't like us doing it. Coke added, they kept telling us there's no crime or corruption in Moscow, but it's just, <laughs> it's like any urban city in the world. Of course there's crime. They just don't tell anyone about it. That's what you get with a closed society. The glamorous, elaborate bathhouse scene in this movie was actually a Swedish health center in Stockholm in Sweden and was apparently owned by pop group ABBA during the time of the making of this film. <laughs> so guys, uh, I was really actually kind of curious to see this film. I found the DVD too at a thrift store and I bought it and I was like, okay, William Hurt. Good. Lee Marvin. Good. Gorky Park, uh, Russia. Good. Of course, by the way, I'm a big hair metal fan and there was a band called Gorky Park that came out in the late eighties. Uh, and I was really curious about to see this cause I love when movies take place in Russia during the cold war, um, remember, was it Firefox, Kyle, when we had a little bit of that going on in the beginning of the film? That's actually my favorite part of the film was, was that whole espionage thing that uh, Clint Eastwood had to do while he was in Russia. And I've always wanted to go to Russia. However, film was kind of boring, guys. It was fascinating the way it started with the, the, the homicide. But I felt that William Hurt's character was just not a likable character and his Russian kind of was slipping from time to time, to be honest with you, even though he's a really good actor. I found Lee Marvin's character interesting in this uh, just because of what, what eventually happened in the film. But uh, I'll be honest with you, I'm not going to keep the DVD. I think I'm one and done with this one. It was okay. Not great. Lacey, have you seen Gorky Park? I saw it for a class. Um I don't know if it was because I was required to see it that I found it so dull, but now that you say that, I feel like I'm a little bit vindicated, I think. Um, I kind of went <laughs> I went into it expecting like a, you know, a spy thriller, Mission Impossible, kind of like, dun, 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 you know, whatever, and um, did not get that. We'll just put it that way. That's gotcha. not what we got. So, gotcha. yeah. Kyle, have you seen Gorky Park? I have never seen it all the way through. I'm like you, Kevin. This movie puts me to sleep. It's it's a, it's a snooze fest, and <laughs> I, I just kind of there's a point where I've tried it a few times, can never get through it, and uh, I'm just yeah, I'm I'm. It had potential, but it failed. So. All right. Yeah. Next, we've got the keep, and I love that the poster says. We're all drawn to the keep, the soldiers who brought to death the father and daughter fighting for life, the people who have always feared it. And the one man who knows its secret. Uh, made a little over $3 million, close to four in its original theatrical run. Uh, Nazis are sent to guard an old mysterious fortress in a Romanian pass. One of them mistakenly releases an unknown force trapped within the walls. A mysterious stranger senses this from his home in Greece and travels to keep uh, to the van to vanquish the force. The soldiers are all killed. A Jewish man and his daughter, who are both knowledgeable to keep, are brought in to find out what is happening. And it's directed by Michael Mann, stars Scott Glenn, Ian McKellen, enough, Alberta Watson, Jurgen Prunchow, and Gabriel Byrne. Kyle, I wanted to see this film because it's a Michael Mann film. And it was one of the films I hadn't seen of his because it was actually honestly kind of hard to find. The laser disc is a high collectible item. I find that out. That is not cheap, but I did find a re-release of the DVD overseas. Uh, I picked it up. Um, I thought it was actually kind of an interesting thought. It, it has ties to world war two and Nazis and this mysterious force. And of course, you know, 
This Jewish man knows its secrets. Uh, I found it kind of interesting, but at times it kind of dragged on, but visually it was kind of fun. Uh, I like it. It's not one of my favorite Michael Mann films, but I like the concept of it. But I don't, you have to be in the right mood to kind of watch it. Kyle, have you seen the, the keep? Um, there, there, there's things about the keep that are um, just bizarre. <laughs> um, here, here's the thing. Let me, let me hit a little trivia here because okay. there's, there's a point I want to make and it's kind of ties in with this one piece of trivia. Well, it was released on VHS and Laserdisc. By the way, Kevin, you can buy this movie on iTunes. I know. <laughs> okay. Um, it has never been released on DVD or Blu-ray. It has been noted that Paramount was going to release it on DVD in 2004, but two reasons have stopped them from doing so. First, the studio wasn't able to attain the rights to of the soundtrack by Tangerine Dream. Second, Michael Mann, who has disowned this movie, forced the studio not to release it. It is currently available on DVD as of May 1, 2017. Okay. There is something I need to address here. This movie, which is strange in its own right, and then you throw in the Tangerine Dream soundtrack. <laughs> and I'm, I'm, excuse my language, but this is a mind F from <laughs> the get-go on this film. This, this film, It is. It is. This, this, this film, you cannot watch this film before you go to sleep. The <laughs> dreams that will affect you afterwards are going to be just out there. I remember my, my roommate actually rented this on iTunes because he had never seen it. And he was watching it one night and I, he, my roommate works night shift. So he can't stay up and I'm hearing the soundtrack play and just the soundtrack playing alone, but just hearing the dialogue was enough to be going, no, we're not doing this right now. Yeah. No. Uh, will you have um, any other trivia? Yeah. Um, Michael Mann once described this film as a fairy fairy story for grown-ups. Fairy tales have the power of dreams from the outside. I decided to stylize the art direction and photography extensively, but use realistic characterization and dialogue with it. The writer of the original novel, F. Paul Wilson, was so unimpressed by Michael Mann's adaption of his work, he wrote a short story called Cuts, in which a writer puts a voodoo curse on a director who has mangled <laughs> his work. Um, wow. Yeah. Yeah. Oh gosh. Okay, uh, then I want to read that book. I don't want to watch the keep, but I want to read the book. What's it called? So, Lacey, I'm assuming you haven't seen the keep then. <laughs> no, as a general rule, if the word Nazi is on the back of a movie, I'm not going to watch it. Like, as a general rule, I mean, you know, you've got your, you know, your Indiana Jones and stuff like that, but as a general rule, no, I'm not going to watch a Nazis. I don't, that's just not my thing. I, I like the shooting locations. I thought they were pretty cool. I like the set production, but it, it is a little weird, but it was, there was just something about it. I did like, uh, I can't quite put my finger on it. But was it the Nazis? I like it when Nazis get their up and coming. You know what I mean? Oh, sure. And I like it. Uh, it uh, Indiana Jones loves taking it to Nazis. And I, I've always liked it. And, you know, I used to watch World War II films with my dad and I liked it when, um, you know, the Nazis were killed. And I, I like I like Nazis ad, as bad guys in films. And uh, um, this one uh, uh, is is no exception. So that was one of the reasons why I liked it. <laughs> All right, guys, the next film I had never heard of and it's called The Man Who Loved Women. A comedy made about $11 million in its original theatrical 
uh, uh, run. And of course, the posters say a lot of stuff back in the 80s. And this one said, David loves Louise for her passion, Nancy for her vulnerability, Svetlana for her grace, Courtney for her patience, and Mariana for her understanding. He finds something to love in all women. And that's why all of them love him back. He wants to settle down, but he can't settle on one. He's deciding which woman in the world he loves most is driving him out of his mind. The man who loved women. And the short IMDb description says a womanizing sculptor named David goes to seek help from a psychiatrist, Mariana, to cure him of his obsession with women. Of course, directed by Blake Edwards, starring his then wife, co-starring his then wife, Julie Andrews, of course, stars Burt Reynolds, uh, Kim Basinger, Mary Lou Henner, Celia Ward and Denise Crosby are all in this film. I found it on YouTube, was able to watch it in parts. <laughs> um, so I'm just going to say it was okay. I was not a fan of Burt Reynolds's. He's not likable, but I really like Julie Andrews who played uh, his psychiatrist in this. She was actually quite charming. It was interesting to see all these young actors uh, in this film as well. Uh, but you're not really ru you're not really rooting for this guy, to be honest with you. And uh, spoiler alert, he's dead at the end because something happens. And uh, I don't know. It just fell flat for me. Uh, Kyle, did you ever see The Man Who Loved Women? I've never seen it. But I got to tell you, Kevin, this, this is a murderer's row of some of the most beautiful young actresses in Hollywood in this film at this time. And I'm like... I'm just like, wow. And Burt Reynolds on the set with all those young, beautiful actresses. <laughs> yeah, I'm just wondering if that was a wise decision. <laughs> you got some uh, trivia for us here for the man who loved women. Yeah. Um, even though they only completed one movie together, Burt Reynolds has said that next to Hal Needham, Blake Edwards was his favorite director with whom to work. Now there's a reason why it was the only one only completed one movie together because he, he, Burt Reynolds had actually worked with Blake Reynolds on two other films. But Reynolds pulled out of those film, both of those films at some point. Edwards was going to direct Reynolds in Rough Cut, but left. Edwards also withdrew from City Heat after various creative differences. Um, first of two movies that Kim Basinger made with writer, producer, and director Blake Edwards, the second being Blind Date. Lacey, have you seen The Man Who Loves Women? I have. I remember it. Um, I think I saw it randomly later on, you know, on VHS or whatever. Um I think that it wouldn't, I don't think it would hold up now. I think it's kind of like, you know, when you watch a Blake Edwards movie now, um, there are so many things now that are not okay. It's kind of like watching a John Hughes movie now. Like you kind of got to like give it a minute before you can, right. ooh, that's not, ooh, that, ooh, that's not, mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. okay. I mean, funny then, not funny now. Gotcha. Like uncomfortable to watch now. Unless, I mean, if you're watching it alone, you're fine. You can laugh, whatever. But if you, you if you're in the room with anyone else, you're not going to laugh at certain points. Yeah, I had never heard of this. I don't remember it being played uh, in you know reruns or anything like this. But uh, I, I, you know, Burt Reynolds was he, he was a thing during this time, of course. But uh, I, I've seen better films with him in it, and it was okay. But uh, for me, the highlight, of course, was uh, um, you know Mary Poppins. <laughs> <laughs> The next film, guys, we've got To Be or Not To Be, starring uh, Mel Brooks and Anne Bancroft, made about a little over $13 million at the time. A bad Polish actor is just trying to make a living 
when what should intrude but World War II and form an invasion. His wife has a habit of entertaining young Polish officers while he's on stage, which is also a source of depression to him. When one of her officers come back on a secret mission, the actor takes charge and comes up with a plan for them to escape. Takes place during World War II uh, with Nazis. Director Alan Johnson uh, stars Mel Brooks, Anne Bancroft, Ronnie Graham, Christopher Lloyd, Tim Matheson, Earl Bowen, and Charles Durning. And I had never seen this film before, guys, but check this out. I have the uh, Mel Brooks collection, which I adore. And uh, it has 12 Chairs, Blazing Saddles, Young Frankenstein, Silent Movie, High, Anx High Anxiety, History of the World Part 1, To Be or Not To Be, Spaceballs, and Robin Hood Men in Tights. That's pretty much really all you need. I had never seen this film before. Uh, I thought it was okay. I didn't find it the funniest. There were some charming moments. Anne Bancroft was kind of cool in it. Uh, it felt kind of like a World War II version of Noises Off. <laughs> I don't, that's the best way to put it. I don't know. Uh, Kyle, have you seen To Be or Not To Be? And also, do you have some trivia? I have actually not seen To Be, to be or Not To Be. So that is a question for me. So... <laughs> dad jokes ahoy nice. but um yeah it is the only film in which what mel brooks stars that he does not direct mel brooks said that is this is his favorite of his brooks film brooks films movies during world war ii mel brooks served as a corporal in the u.s army in france where part of his duties included diffusing landmines before the infantry moved into the area Brooks fought in the Battle of the Bulge in late 1944. Charles Durning, who plays Nazi SS Commander Colonel Earnhardt, was also a veteran of the Battle of the Bulge and was present at the liberation of Nazi death camp at Buchenwald. Um, the first Hollywood studio film to explicitly refer to the inclusion of gay men in the groups condemned to the Nazi death camps. The use of fabric patches by the Nazis to identify undesirables other than Jews is a historic fact. Pink and red triangles, depending on the region, depending on the region of Europe, were used to identify sexual deviants, predatory homosexuals, or predominantly homosexuals. Gotcha. So, Lacey, have you seen To Be or Not To Be? I haven't, but now that you say that it's a World War II version of Noises Off, I kind of want to. And I just looked it up, and it's like fifty bucks for the Blu-ray. So I'm thinking maybe not. Uh, what for the Mel Brooks collection? No, just for this single movie. Oh, it'd probably be cheaper to buy the Mel Brooks collection. <laughs> just okay. so you know. Yeah. yeah. Just because there's a lot of shenanigans that go on during uh, the plays that they have to do, trying to, uh, you know, get shenanigans around the Nazis and stuff like that. It, 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 it It's one of those where you can obviously tell it, it has been a play on Broadway because of, of yeah. how it takes place and stuff like that. Uh, I think probably one of the highlights for me was Tim Matheson in it because he plays the the young soldier, I think it is. And uh, he, he was actually pretty good in it. I liked him. Yeah. Cool. Next, guys, we've got Two of a Kind starring John Travolta and Olivia Newton-John. It took a twist of fate to make them Two of a Kind. God has just had just about enough of mankind's attitude. So he decides that he needs to destroy the planet in the immediate future. Unless two particular humans, a struggling inventor and a bank teller, both with quite amateur criminal minds, can save the world. <laughs> Star or director John Hertzfield, of course, stars Olivia Newton-John and John Travolta, Charles Durning and Oliver Reed. Kyle, what trivia do you have? 
After striking box office gold with Grease in 1978, the 20th Century Fox studio reteamed Travolta and Dame Olivia Newton-John five years later for this romantic comedy. To date, this is the second and final star teaming. Although she starred in three theatrical movies and had made countless TV appearances in the 15 years prior to this movie, Dame Olivia Newton-John was insecure about her acting abilities and decided to enroll in acting training in preparation for the film. The movie soundtrack was so successful, it went platinum. It contained The movie was part of a 1980s cycle of Hollywood angelic comedies, which had starred with, started with Heaven Can Wait. The films inc- included that movie and, and Two of a Kind, The Devil and Max Devlin, Defending Your Life, Oh Heavenly Dog, Kiss Me Goodbye, The Heavenly Kid, Made in Heaven, Almost an Angel, and Oh God, and its two sequels. The phrase Heaven Can Wait forms part of the lyrics in Two of a Kind, to a kind of theme song, Twist of Fate, sung by Dame Olivia Newton-John. I, I'm feeling very religious all of a sudden. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I actually ended up, I took a chance on this and I bought the DVD because I, I love these two together. I'd never seen this film. Uh, and, you know, with Olivia Newton-John passing um, in the last couple of years, you know, maybe kind of missing her as well. And I was like, okay, I want to check this out. And I also found out too, the soundtrack had like, four or five of her songs singing on it. Uh, I think one of them, um, they did a duet as well, <sighs> but guys, <laughs> the movie was not good. Uh, basically, um, John Travolta is an inventor and he's, he owes a loan shark some money and he can't pay it. So he robs a bank and she's the bank teller. And, and then the whole God thing, trying to get them together. It was just weird. It didn't fit. It seemed jumbled and disjointed. There were some moments with uh, these two that was kind of fun to watch, but it did not save the movie. And I will not be saving this movie myself. <laughs> Lacey, have you seen this? I haven't. I feel like both of the movies that you just said that you don't want are two that I want to borrow from you. (laughs) (laughs) I I will send it to you if you want to watch uh, Two of a Kind. Between this one and what was the other one? You just said that you you were like, I have it. I just don't think I'm going to keep it. And I can't remember what it was, but I was like, oh, I should watch Gorky Park. Maybe. I don't remember. Oh, no. the, The Man Who Loved Women. I don't remember. <laughs> anyway, oh, yeah. doesn't matter. Anyway, the, the Mel Brooks collection is, I think, cheaper on on yeah. online. So oh, there, there yeah. Um, I will say this <laughs> honestly: the trivia that you just read makes me like t- absolutely interested in doing like a Heaven Can Wait, like all all the different like like God inspired like matchup movies from that time period. For the, for that, <laughs> I would absolutely watch all of those back to back and just see which ones I like the best. That sounds like really. Like that sounds fun. Kyle, did you see two of a kind? It's been a long time, but yeah, I did see this. This is a, one of those classic Hollywood things where, Hey, we're going to recapture the magic of these two together. And nope, <laughs> the, the magic is out of the bottle. ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> 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 Gotta wait. <laughs> Next guys, we have, I think probably my favorite movie of, uh, this podcast of, of December of 19. And that one is Uncommon Valor, guys. Love this film. I got the DVD right here. A group of Vietnam veterans reunite to rescue one of their own, left behind and taken prisoner by the Vietnamese. Led by his father, retired Marine colonel, and supported by a rich businessman whose son is also a POW, the group engages in a dangerous and violent adventure trying to rescue POWs and at the same time redirect their lives. 
Uh, this film made about 20, almost $28 million in its original theatrical run, directed by Ted uh, Kotcheff, writers Joe Gayton and Wings Hauser. Stars Gene Hackman, Patrick Swayze, Robert Stack, Fred Ward, Red Brown, Randall Tex Cobb, Tim Thomerson, and Michael Dudikoff is in this, if I remember correctly. Uh, Kyle, give me some trivia on Uncommon Valor. Uncommon Valor has a little unique place in Hollywood because it is the first of the bringing them back from Vietnam MIA POW movies of the 1980s. Part of a mini Hollywood cycle of war movies made during the early to mid-1980s involving the rescue of American soldiers still being held in Vietnam. The, these films include Missing in Action and Rambo First Blood Part Two. Gene Hackman asks his good friend and co-star Cisco Pike, Chris Christopherson, himself a former Airborne Ranger, in, if he wanted to do a cameo in this film. Christopherson had to decline because he was performing on a concert. Patrick Swayze replaced James Remar for this movie. Hold on, Kyle. This is a thing that's starting to happen. In 80, okay. James Ramar was replaced in Aliens, the sequel. Um, I'm kind of sensing a theme here. <laughs> um, I believe James was going through some things at this time. Yes. yes. Yeah. There was, I feel like there was a bunch of like rehab stints at this point. Yeah. Because like, yeah. he's sober now. Like I know he, yeah. he does a lot of talk about being sober. Um, due to the U.S. government's perception that the film's story was anti-government, the U.S. Department of Defense refused to rent the production company military spec Huey or Jet Ranger helicopters. Such helicopters were brought in and repainted for repainted for use in the apparently uncredited 1980s action star Wings Hauser wrote the movie story. <laughs> After First Blood in 1982, this was Ted Kotcheff's second consecutive film dealing with the Viet with Vietnam War veterans. And here you go, Kevin. In a small role, this was an early action film. For Michael Dudikoff, who became Mr. American Ninja. For a long time, no one could spot actor Dudikoff, Michael Dudikoff, in the film, and it was a mis—it was a mystery. He is credited as Blaster's assistant. You can see him in a non-speaking role at the twenty-minute mark. He is wearing a yellow jumpsuit at the airport while he grabs Blaster's bag and hard guitar case. He also grabs Wilkes bag and enters the private jet. He can be seen a minute later standing next to the plane and the pilot. And pilot as everyone enters the private jet while the CIA man takes pictures. He was 29 years old when this movie was released. <laughs> uh, of all of the Vietnam, let's go rescue the MIA movies. Um, of course, you know, you have first blood, you have the mission. Uh, I'm sorry. First blood part two, you have the Michigan action films and there's a bunch of other films as well. This one is my favorite because of the camaraderie between, uh, the cast and the fact that they were all part of the same platoon. They also touch on some PTSD they have, including Fred Ward's character. Randall Tex Cobb is probably, I love him. He's such a great character actor. He's wonderful in this film. And Gene Hackman plays the father in this. And I like how he gets these guys together and he kind of does it in a crappy way where he makes them feel guilty if they don't do it because his son is still there, but they finally come together and how they do this whole training sequence of, these uh, of, of the actual camp that they have to go to first. It has some wonderful moments while they kind of bond and get together. But what's interesting is Patrick Swayze is the younger guy in this, and he wasn't in Vietnam, but he was in the service. But we find out he has trouble bonding with these guys, and he gets some advice from Gene Hackman's character to get their trust and, and bond with him. But then they find out later that it's his father 
uh, that went missing in action or died in war. And so you see these guys going and finally you see them going to Vietnam. They almost get arrested. They lose all their weapons. So they have to find more weapons and they find some locals to help them out. And it's just a wonderful, good action film as well as some great character moments. Uh, one of my favorite action films of the uh, 1980s. Kyle, your thoughts on Uncommon Valor? I think the problem for Uncommon Valor is it gets lost in the mix between Rambo and um, Missing in Action, which two very different styles of this. I think kind of this. Film. I think the name of the movie doesn't help it either. To be honest no. with you, and I, I think I think it kind of. It gets more thrown in with like I, I think a lot of people tend to throw it more in with like platoon and things like yeah. that because of a, a lot of it's just the cover the images on the cover and how it how it was portrayed. But it is a great action film. But yeah, I think it's just it's the one that it, it was early. It was the first one about going back to Vietnam to rescue him. But I think it just it gets yeah. lost from bigger franchises. Yeah, yeah. Thanks to Rambo Part Two, definitely. Lacey, have you seen Uncommon Valor? I'm. And I don't know. I don't think so. Here's the thing. I, for the longest time, because I read the list of the movies that were going to be on this list tonight. And in my head, it was one of the, <laughs> so this is one of the, the few that were all back to back. That was like the going back to Vietnam. I thought mistakenly that it was one of the ones where we're trapped in, in a war camp and we have to play a sport to get away. No, because there was, a, there was like a, a kind of a bunch of different ones, like right in a row. Where like you, you mean know, victory? Yeah, victory. Yeah, yeah. victory. Uh, and then there was there's been several other ones where like they had to play soccer or play rugby or whatever, and then while they're doing that, they could get away or something. So I, that's for some reason I put a common. Got a little technical issue. Miss Lacey has frozen. Uh oh. Uh -oh. No, she's okay on my end, Kyle. Hello. <laughs> Okay, um, but yeah, so I had put it in the wrong box, and I mistakenly thought that I had seen it when it was them playing sports, and um, so then no, I have not seen it. Well, I think you might like it. I, I would recommend getting it. It is uh, especially just for the the cast itself. Yeah. is It's fun to watch all these guys, and right. uh, yeah, and uh, it's it's got a great training sequence of them bonding back together and getting nice. Better, so definitely recommend that. Next movie, we have just a couple more guys. Next one is David Bowie and Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars concert film made uh, just about $362,000 um, in the theater at the time. And uh, this is the July 3rd, 1973 historic concert of the Leper Messiah. This was to be David Bowie's last concert with the Ziggy persona and the Spiders from Mars, a great medley of Quote, Wild Eye Boyd from Free Cloud, All the Young Dudes, Oh You Pretty Thing, a Lou Reed cover, and the Rolling Stones cover, but some of more of some of the highlights from the concert. Of course, uh, David Bowie and his band with guitarist Mick Ronson and many others. Um, Kyle, give us some trivia first before I give you my thoughts on this. Shot in 1973, the picture did not get a wide release across the world until a full decade later in 1983. Jeff Beck guested on guitar in two songs and was supposed to have been in the film, but asked not to appear in it because he felt his souls and his appearance looking more like a sixties blue rocker, the boy and the spiders theatrical outfits didn't quite fit the movie. Um, Marlene Dietrich and Ringo Starr are said to have been in the audience and director PA Pennebaker arranged for science to be put up around the Hammersmith Odeon that told the crowd to bring flash cameras and take as many photos as they could, which added an illumination to the crowd. I know exactly where that theater is. 
I remember I, I've heard about this film. I had never seen it before. Uh, I, I do like Bowie. I'm not a huge fan of his, but I was kind of curious about this. I did find it on YouTube and I started watching it and I could not get through the first 10 minutes of it here. I'll tell you why it has nothing to do with the music. It was the way it was shot. It felt like there was only one or two cameras and it fixated mostly with one and everything was dark except for a few moments when the rest of the band would light up when someone else was playing, when Mick Ronson was playing guitar solo, but it mostly zeroed in on Bowie with everything else being black. And I could not, it was a horribly filmed documentary concert. It was one of the worst I've ever seen. I could not get through it. I'm sorry. <laughs> I like the, I like him. I like the music. And the fact that Jeff Beck did not appear in it is a travesty because Jeff Beck uh, is one of the most uh, like underrated guitar players of all time. Uh, I love his sound, and I wish uh, he would have you know been been seen on this. I love the fact that we do get a little bit of Mick Ronson in this. I, I saw a couple of his guitar solos. Uh, died too young. I think he was like 41 when he passed away due to cancer, I believe. Underrated guitar player as well. But man, uh, whoever shot this thing, I hope, uh, they did better later on or never filmed another thing again. This, it, this was not fun to watch for me. I had to stop watching it. Lacey fan of David Bowie. Um, not a fan of music in general. So, I mean, I'm not, I, I don't go out of the way to watch um, videos or music or concerts or stuff like that. So um, no. Okay. What about you, Kyle? Have you ever seen this one? I'm like you. I've, 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 seen some clips of it and it's just yeah no and this is actually something that haunts most 1970 concert type documentaries or films they're shot so horribly because they just didn't have the equipment and yeah just they, they so, should have turned some lights on uh they should have done some panning around i felt like it was done with one camera uh it just yeah th this is a if you want to learn how not to shoot a concert film watch this one <laughs> I'm going to say they really didn't learn to sh properly shoot concert films to the 19th. Yeah, it's true. It's true. And this was filmed, of course, in se early 70s. We have one more film guy, guys. And this was probably uh, a surprise to me that, um, it, you know, this was not filmed in the United States, but it was popular in the United States because of a sport. And that is the BMX Bandits. BMX Bandits. Uh, here we go. Three teenagers discover a stash of walkie-talkies and decide to make a quick buck and to sell the items. Unfortunately for them, the equipment belongs to a gang of hardened criminals who need them for their next job. They will do anything to get them back. <laughs> Directed by Brian uh, Trenchard-Smith and stars David Argue, John Lee, and more famously, Nicole Kidman. I was a big BMX uh uh, writer when I was a kid, it was cool if you had a BMX and this was really before, um, what was it? What was it? Thrashing Kyle? What was the other one with Josh? Rad. Rad, Rad. Excuse me. Thank you. Rad. Rad came out. You had BMX bandits and this seemed to show a lot more. It was family friendly as well. And I rewatched it and I decided to listen to the director's commentary. And what was really cool is there's a great opening scene. And I didn't know this in the time, but they were originally going to film it in Melbourne, Australia, where my wife's from, but instead they went to Sydney. And the first scene is this awesome location called Manly Beach, a great surf spot. It's in the uh, Sydney Harbor area. And I was like, I've been there. I know exactly where that is. 
and it was nice to listen to the audio commentary about things that he did. Uh, the trivia says something else, but she was actually 15 years old, according to the director when this was done. And what's funny is at the end of the film, there is, well, towards the end of the film, where they're being chased, uh, <laughs> it was like a 30-minute chase in and around uh, <laughs> Sydney and other areas. But it was funny because of all the stuff and the things that gets knocked over, all the places that they ride through. And there's certain, there's a, a lot of moments you can find out when the stunt doubles were. And the stunt double for Nicole Kidman was actually a boy. <laughs> but uh, so imagine being a boy dressed up as Nicole Kidman while doing stunts. A fun film, though. Uh, it was safe for, you know, families and stuff to watch. And, uh, it's, you know, it's, you know, Australian kids having fun running around in bikes while corny villains are chasing them. Kyle, you got some trivia for us. Yeah. You hit, you hit on most of it when we were talking about the director's comedy, but Nicole Kidman was 15 when this was filmed, but she was 16 when the movie was, um, her stunt double was an 18 year old boy in a wig because the production couldn't find a girl stunt double with a similar build and height who could also perform the BMX stunt bike riding. Reportedly, the cross-dressing stunt double would get somewhat embarrassed standing around waiting for takes. Um, three top BMX bike experts performed all the stunts in this film. The young leads didn't generally do any of the difficult stunts due to safety and complexity of them. Um, the original title for this picture in the first draft of the script was Water Rats. Moreover, moreover the three teenage protagonists were much younger in the first draft of the script. Gotcha. Kyle, your thoughts on BMX Bandits? BMX Bandits was one of those things that in the U.S. you only saw it on VHS. It never had a theatrical release. I think it got it kind of became popular as BMX became became more popular in the '80s. You had Rad come out. You had a couple other types of with the BMX or the skateboarding films. But where this movie actually found second life was around the time a movie called Days of Thunder came out. Because that <laughs> really yep. put Nicole Kidman on the map, and everybody <laughs> wanted to start finding out who is this Nicole Kidman. Obviously, if you, I was familiar her from with her from her role in Dead Calm, but it was really uh, Days of Thunder, kind of giving BMX Bandits a second life because it's Nicole Kidman. It's <laughs> <laughs> true. Lacey, have you seen BMX Bandits? Oh, absolutely. I remember it used to be on like TNT or Channel 46 or whatever, like every Friday, every Saturday morning. Um, and it, it, we never, never turned it off. I mean, it was definitely a couch potato theater movie. Like if, if we were flipping through, it didn't matter if there was only six minutes left, we'd stop and watch it. Yeah. It was just fun and ridiculous. And a lot of the things, like, like you said, like everything, like the number of shots, the insert shots, I feel like the movie would have been like 12 to 15 minutes shorter if they hadn't put any of the insert shots of things falling over. <laughs> yeah. That and was one of the things they discussed. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That was one of the things that he discussed in the audio commentary was trying to find things cheap to knock over and destroy. That's and that was part of the that was part of the 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 gag behind it was that let's see how much these uh these kids on bikes how much Fun they could have going all around town while they're being chased by these bad guys. Kyle. Now, Kevin, when growing up with BMX, what was the most important thing you had on, had to have on your bike? Because I know what it was for everybody I grew up around. In. 
if you didn't have mag wheels, you didn't have an actual BMX bike. Yeah, mag wheels and all the little pads on everything. And yeah, it was, you know, and you had Redline Mongoose and all these other popular bikes. It it, it was it was a fun part of my life. I, I do miss that. That was a lot of fun. So yeah, Lacey. I had roller skates. <laughs> and, and, and I had a banana seat bike that was <laughs> Yeah, yeah. That's funny. I had roller 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 skates. That's it. Well, that was that's it for uh, December in the movies. But uh, I did want to mention the top grossing movies of 1983, and if any of these films actually made it in December in there, the top ones were ten Risky Business, nine Mr. Mom, eight Staying Alive, seven Sudden Impact. That one snuck in there, sixty-seven million dollars. Number six was Octopussy. Uh, five was War Games. Four was Trading Places. Three was Flashdance. Terms of Endearment uh, breached the 100 million mark with uh, 108 million. And number one was Return of the Jedi at $309 million. All right, guys. So we do have one thing we need to talk about, and that is the Oscars that were, of course, filmed or, you know, took place. The next year, 56 Adult Academy Awards uh, were uh, uh, filmed in April 9th, 1984, the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion uh, by ABC. Uh, comedian and talk show host Johnny Carson hosted the show for the fifth time. He, pre- he first proceeded over the 51st ceremony held in 1979. Uh, and uh, the telecast garnered 42.1 million viewers in the United States. When it comes to the winners, of course, we have Best Picture Terms of Endearment won, James L. Brooks producer. Uh, nominees for Best Picture were uh, Big Chill, The Dresser, The Right Stuff, and Tender Mercies. Best Director was James L. Brooks for Terms of Endearment. Uh, Best Director for Peter, uh, nominees for Peter Yates, Ingmar Bergman. Um, for Fanny and Alexander, Peter Yates was for The Dresser, Mike Nichols for Silkwood, and Bruce Beresford for Tender Mercies. Best Actor winner was Robert Duvall for Tender Mercies. Michael Caine was nominated for Educating Rita. Nominated also was Tom Conti for Reuben. Uh, Tom Courtenay as The Dresser, um, and Albert Finney in The Dresser as well. Best Actress, we had Shirley MacLaine, Terms of Endearment. Nominated were John Jane Alexander for Testament, Meryl Streep for Silkwood, Julie Waters for Educating Rita, Deborah Winger for Terms of Endearment, Best Supporting Actor Jack Jack Nicholson for Terms of Endearment, also also nominated for Actor Best Actor Supporting Actor was Charles Durning for To Be or Not to Be, John Lithgow Terms of Endearment, Sam Shepard The Right Stuff, Rip Torn as in Cross Creek, and Best Supporting Actor. Linda Hunt wins for Year of Living Dangerously. Also nominated in that category was Cher for Silkwood, Glenn Close for The Big Chill, Amy Irving, Yentl, and Alfre Woodard for Cross Creek. Best Original Song, the winner was Flashdance, What a Feeling. Uh, and uh, the films with multiple wins with Terms of Endearment with five, uh, four, Fanny and Alexander in Right Stuff, and two for Tender Mercies. Lacey, I want to get your thoughts on these Oscar winners. Was anything robbed? Anything surprising? What are your thoughts? I would have given best picture to The Big Chill. 
Um, yeah, I would agree. I think Julie Walters in Educating Rita. Uh, I mean, she did get the BAFTA for that, which is which is fantastic. And that was her. I want to say that was her first film. Might be wrong. I feel like that's something in the back of my head. Um, but yeah, she did get the BAFTA on that. Uh, but I thought that I thought that that would be a little bit. I mean, don't get me wrong. I just I love Shirley MacLaine. She's fantastic when she's funny. But this was not a funny movie. Like in terms, of, it's just not my my kind of movie. So yeah. Kyle, what about you? What do you think? Uh, this, this, of course, was the uh, Terms of Endearment Appreciation Society Awards. <laughs> um, Which I still I have never Terms seen. of Endearment, so I don't think I, it's fair for me to give a full judgment on this. Um, I will say this there's a, as a, another interesting note Meryl Streep not winning an Oscar. This would be before yeah. she had a stranglehold on that, yeah. that award for a very long time. Um, and obviously, you know, this is one of those times where I think that they probably got it right because this was at a point in Hollywood where all the major awards, you didn't have the surprises. Once the ball started rolling, you could tell what movie was going to take home everything. And this was also before, sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, it was like that for a very long time. Yeah. This is just before predictable. It was before the Academy got a sense of humor and started realizing that just because a movie was animated or action didn't mean it wasn't worthy of the award. I mean, you don't have to have a three and a half hour, you know, silent film to get to make it, you know, worthy of having, you know, honors. And so you, you start, it was one of those things where you had kind of star Wars and those kind of things and they would get like the technical stuff, you know, they'd get the, the technical Oscars that would be that we'd be done at like the governor's ball the week beforehand, things like that. And then you slowly start getting the the sound editing and that kind of thing where, you know, the special effects editing. And then people started realizing that, wait a second, a movie like star Wars can be an Oscar winner or, you know, any, whatever, yeah, um, I, I, just for other things, like the little stuff. I think it took Peter Jackson to really turn the tide on that. So, the one that surprises me the most though, is Linda Hunt winning um, for the year of living, living dangerously. She's amazing in that movie though. Have you seen she it? Is, she yeah. is, but I like your call of giving big chill. I think big chill should have won for best picture. Mm-hmm. Uh, Glenn close was nominated. I would have given it to her as well. I think that would have been nice. Um, I didn't for, see yet to learn anything like that, but uh, Glenn um, close. Brooklyn. Uh, no, Glenn Close for the big chill. Is oh, Sarah okay. Cooper. Gotcha. Yeah. I, I think yeah. a lot of people thought Cher should have won it. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I just, uh, I just like Glenn Close and Meryl Streep in my brain, just like switch places. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Nope. I'm good. Last but not least guys, we got to talk about the Razzies. Got to talk about the Razzies. Yeah. The fourth golden raspberry awards were held on April 8th, 1984 at the third street elementary school in Los Angeles, California. <laughs> I found that funny (laughs) to recognize the worst the movie industry had to offer in 1983. The worst pictures were the lonely lady, Hercules, Jaws, 3d stoker, ace and two of a kind. And uh, lonely lady one. Sorry. I said, I own three out of five of those. (laughs) (laughs) Throw that out there. (laughs) Worst director was uh, Peter Sadsey for The Lonely Lady, Joe Alves for Jaws 3D, Brian De Palma in Scarface. Really? John Hersfeld for Two of a Kind and Hal Needham for Stoker Ace. The worst actor, Christopher Atkins for A Night in Heaven. (laughs) 
I, I could see why. Yeah. Uh, Lloyd Botchner for the lonely lady, Lou Frigno and Hercules as Hercules, Barbara Streisand and Yentl. <laughs> God, worst actor knob. John Travolta in staying alive and two of a kind as Tony Manero and Zach. So he got a double dose there. Worst actress was Pia Zadora, the lonely lady. She won. Um, and, and I don't know if I mentioned, but Christopher Atkins won in worst actor. Also nominated for Worst Actress was Lonnie Anderson in Stoker Ace, Linda Blair in Chained Heat, Faye Dunaway in Wicked Lady, and Olivia Newton-John in Two of a Kind. Worst Supporting Actor, Jim Neighbors won for Stoker Ace as Lugs Harvey. Uh, also nominated for Worst Supporting Actor was Joseph Kelly, Lonely Lady, Lou Gossick Jr. in Jaws 3D, Anthony Holland in The Lonely Lady, and Richard Pryor in Superman 3. Worst Supporting Actress, Sybil Danning won. By the way, I have the nominees here for showing in the pictures. Sybil Danning um, won for two roles, Chained Heat and Hercules. Also nom nominated was B.B. Besh in The Lonely Lady, Fionola Hughes in Staying Alive. God damn it, take that back. Fionola Hughes was great in that and hot. <laughs> uh, Amy Irving was also uh, nominated and Yentl and Dan uh, Diana Scarwild in Strange Invaders. Worst new star winner was Lou Frigno and Hercules. Nominated also was Lonnie Anderson, Stoker Ace, Red Brown, and Yor, the Hunter of the Future, Cindy and Sandy, the Shrieking Dolphins in Jaws 3D, <laughs> and Finola Hughes for Staying Alive. Shame on you. And worst screenplay went to the Lonely Lady. Runner-ups were Flashdance, Hercules, Jaws 3D, True Blood, and Two of a Kind. And the worst original song was The Way You Do It from The Lonely Lady. I did not see Lonely Lady starring Pia Zadora. I've never heard of it until I started watching this because <laughs> The Lonely Lady also got the worst musical scores. The Lonely Lady received 11. Hercules, Jaws 3D, Stoker Ace, Two of a Kind received five. Um, Guys, any thoughts on the Razzies? Stroke Ace is a classic, and there is nothing you can say to change my mind. Sorry. Stroke Ace is delightful. Um, Richard Pryor probably should have won that Razzie for uh, mm -hmm. Superman 3. Mm -hmm. just saying. Now, yep. it doesn't mean it wasn't funny to watch him, but he didn't. He kind of didn't fit in the movie. You know yeah. what I mean? He was funny, but it, he, he could have had his own movie. Like, just that 17 minutes. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. Kyle, your thoughts on the Razzies? The Lonely Lady must have been really bad because Hercules. <laughs> really I bad. just yeah. ordered The Lonely Lady because that sounds hilarious and I need to see it. I'm kind of curious about it. it yeah. sounds absolutely hilarious to me. Well, that's it, guys, for 1983. Quick comments of the year of 83. Kyle? Um, a, a year that is definitely of movies that is definitely reflective of the times more so than I think of any other year that we've covered, to be honest with you. Just, I mean, especially when we were talking about the nuclear threat, the cold war, everything along those lines and just where we were at socially as a society. Um, so yeah, it, it's an interesting mix of movies in 83. Um, I obviously you have some big hits with return of the Jedi and things like that. I don't think it's maybe one of the most historical years of film. Um, as far as just like, Oh wow. There's like massive list of films in this year compared to some other years in the eighties, but 
matching where we were in a lot of different places mentally, I think 83 hits that right on the nose. Yeah. A lot of drama that I'm glad I missed. Uh, Lacey, uh, your thoughts on the movies of 83? I think you just summed it up. It's a lot of drama that I'm glad I missed. Like, I, I feel like as a 10-year-old in the like the middle of the 80s, I really did glass over a lot of the the scary stuff. You know what I mean? Like a lot of the political scary stuff. You know, the Cold War, all that kind of, you know, mm-hmm. you know, in real life. And so a lot of the movies that were showing that kind of thing again i was 10 years old so i never would have seen these during during that time i would have seen them you know five seven years later maybe in high school maybe they had something you know for a, a poli sci class or something but yeah the, the the 80s the the 1983 was like i think i said it earlier it was a little bipolar kind of you know like one way or like totally other direction so yeah yeah it's uh Honestly, I think it was one of those Oscars I would not have enjoyed. And I don't remember, I didn't get into watching the Oscars until later, but 83 definitely made an impact on me. Yes, there was a lot of dramas I didn't either watch or even, you know, care for, but there was a lot of interesting niche films that came out that I liked that I'm very, very fond of. And, you know, obviously the obvious is, is Star Wars, but there was, there was a lot of good stuff there. And, and it was, it was fu- a fun year to go through and learn about and watch some movies for the first time. So, yeah. Uh, before I give a little tease on what's happening in 84 guys, cause we'll be covering 1984 time warp because there is some doozy good ones there. Uh, first of all, you can find, uh, us here on the fandom podcast network and the fandom podcast network uh, YouTube channel. Please. If you're listening to this, please subscribe, check out all the cool slides that we've been showing here. Fandom podcast network is on Facebook. Uh, you can email us at fandom podcast network at gmail.com. We're also on Instagram and Twitter. My name is Kevin. I am on Twitter and Instagram and uh, threads or Twitter is now X guys uh, at Spartan underscore Phoenix. Kyle, where can we find you? When I'm not playing tic-tac-toe or global thermal nuclear war, you can find me on X slash Twitter at AKyleW. You can find me on Instagram and threads at AKyleFandom. Lacey, where can we find you? I am Lacey Pants. Um, on Facebook, um, I think I'm the Lacey Pants on Instagram. Yep. I'm Lacey Pants on X. Uh, my license plate says L Pants. I mean, you know, whatever. Nice. Awesome. Cool. (laughs) Find you on Facebook as well. So there you go. Cool. All right. We are Time Warp. This is the Fandom Flashback Show. Thank you guys again for joining us for uh, 1983. But guess what, guys? 84. I'm going to try to read this very quickly because this is just a tip of the iceberg of the year of 84. We're going to cover movies such as Footloose, Repo Man, This is Spinal Tap, Splash, The Ice Pirates, Police Academy, Greystoke, Romancing the Stone, Breaking, and Breaking 2, Electric Boogaloo, 16 Candles, Firestarter, The Natural, Indiana Jones, The Temple of Doom, Star Trek Three: The Search for Spock, Streets of Fire, Ghostbusters, Gremlins, The Karate Kid, Top Secret, Bachelor Party, Conan the Destroyer, The Last Starfighter, The Muppet Steak Manhattan, Revenge of the Nerds, The Never-Ending Story, Purple Rain, The Adventures of Buckaroo Banzai, Across the Eighth Dimension, Cloak and Tagger, Red Dawn, The Woman in Red, Ninja 3, The Domination, Amadeus, Olami, Starman, The Nightmare on Elm Street, Nightmare, Night of the Comet, Missing in action, Supergirl, Johnny Dangerously, Dune, Beverly Hills Cop, oh, and the Terminator. Kyle, thank you so much for joining me, as always. Appreciate you. It's always fun to be here, but I am serious. I'm going to go play some Global Thermal Nuclear War, and I'll tell you about it in the day after. And uh, don't forget to destroy Las Vegas first. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) 
Lacey Wait a minute, the Raiders you. are in Vegas now. Or is that, are you sure you want that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Lacey, as always, thank you so much. Appreciate you coming on. Yay, it was so much fun. I have a blast doing these with you guys. 1984, guys. We got a lot to cover. We're very, very excited about it. Thank you for joining us here for 1983, of course. Part 7, the movies and awards for December of 1983. Until next time, everyone, we will see you back in time. Thank mm-hmm. you.